0: Warning, 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 warning. Trigger, Trigger alert. alert. She about to say some real shit. <laughs>
1: um crazy weather we're having Brad. <laughs> Isn't it though? Isn't it really like annoying it's that there the can, you can't get like 3 freezing days in a row? Like you get one freezing day, like, and you can't even kind of put on the same gear that you had this on the is, day before. But hey, it's the, nice today. This is
2: what it's supposed to be like in New York.
1: 40? Is 40s? it 40? Uh, I
2: thought it was in the 30s.
1: No, when I'm not zipping my coat up in the, like, before, like, March 21st, it's a little bit strange. I mean, I'm
2: not. Yeah, but it was cold as hell last week. I remember right, it, for, I mean, three,
1: that's, for three days, yeah, that's all and it's I'm good at that. It's good, yeah. And then, do you remember before it got freezing? It was like 65 degrees,
2: yeah. That was, and there was
1: like stupid. dandelions popping up. i <laughs> or like, it like, like in just one day,
2: 40 degrees is perfect winter. I agree. And then, as soon as you get above Westchester, it should drop down to 28 degrees so that I can go skiing. Totally.
1: <laughs> well, it's north, yeah, so of course, it, it has to, and it's by you yeah. know. What do you <coughs> ski in Westchester?
2: No, I'm. Mean, everything is above. Like that's just kind of a line.
1: Oh, that's your line. Yeah, yeah. Right, and then when you go like into above Westchester to Rockland, Western it should be 26 Mass, degrees.
2: Catskills. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay. Bear Mountain. Yeah. Yeah.
2: There's no skiing at Bear Mountain. Now. Yes, there is. Oh, there is. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've never skied there.
1: Listen, you have to be a bear. <laughs> <laughs> um. Not they're a, having like all these problems with all these bears, like encroaching people's. Uh, I know they're coming back. They're co- they're coming back like hard body, and they're like finding <laughs> dumpsters, and they're like camping out. Yeah, and they're so freaking cute.
2: Mm, but they'll hurt you.
1: Yeah, because you know that's what they do.
2: They're wild animals, man. Um, yeah, I know they're becoming pests, though.
1: So. Yeah, it's it's. We it's, all need to
2: learn to live together. Right. The bears. But what do
1: you? What would you do, though, if you were like looking at, well, like you were going to throw your garbage out or whatever, and there's <laughs> like a bear. <laughs> like standing there, like about your would, garbage can. Like it's you're like, I would, hey. Uh,
2: I'd be like, later.
1: You'd be like, I'll here. throw my garbage out later. Help yourself. Yeah, see you later. There's some crusts in there. Enjoy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd say, hey, Oscar, put the throw this out.
1: I had an entire family of raccoons coming to my house I uh, like I found some like I guess like gingerbread house that I had bought to do like with my kid during Christmas two years ago or something and then I like unearthed it because of course I like put a million things on top of it, completely forgot about it. And two years later, I'm like, come on, let's make (laughs) this. It was completely like cracked and destroyed, had these little bags of candy and had icing. And I was like, ugh. And my, of course my kid was like, let me eat the candy. I'm like, oh no, 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 don't Uh. eat this candy. It's gross. So I threw it out and I came out the next day and the whole garbage was everywhere. The icing and the, but it it was like neatly left in these like little lines, like of all. And then- the next day, I found more like old Halloween Christmas stuff from like years before that I threw out. And again, all the garbage. So I went out to throw out the garbage. Like the next night, the th- the third night, I didn't have any sweet treats. <laughs> there were six raccoons standing. Waiting? <laughs> they were standing there. And they were like, what's up?
2: Yo, bitch, what's taking you so long? Yeah.
1: They're like, got icing? <laughs> on, like, can I get candy corn? Like two-year-old candy corn? That shit was good. <laughs> And they're all like standing there, like waiting, like looking at me, and I was like, <laughs> ah! and they all ran away, and I felt really bad, and I was like, oh, like no,
2: they're evil little bastards, <laughs> this fucking they're so little key. hands, they're so cute. They're
1: little masks. <laughs> they're
2: like little people. They are like little people. And like little people, they're yeah. They just dangerous. like kind of looked
1: at me until I had a reaction, and then when I had a reaction, they were like, all right, we're leaving, but. <laughs> um but yes i live with wildlife tiny wildlife that's but, pretty amazing yeah imagine it was a bear family and they would be like nah you'd bitch. be screwed You're yeah a bear on that <laughs> they're island. like where's the fridge <laughs> <laughs> um but yes we must respect um wild animals and um respect your mother right nature. And that's right respect your mother nature Speaking of respecting mothers, (laughs) our guest, you know, it's funny when I was doing research on our guest today, he was, I I was like, oh, my God, this guy, like, is so, like, focused on all these gifts and creative spark that his mother, like, passed down to him because really, like, Almost all the interviews, he's like, I got my creativity from my mother, my mother, my mother, my mother. And it's funny, not that he doesn't give her props, too, but it's much more complex story than that. It seems, you know.
2: Yeah, his mom
1: is. His mom, his
2: mom. um, His mom obviously had some different ideas about how it's done.
1: right. But he seems to be he seems oh. to be no worse for the wear. None
2: none whatsoever. Right?
1: And like yeah. he um he used like those experiences to his advantage to like navigate like even through crazy corporate crises. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. And that um tenacity I guess that he learned from his mother of survival.
2: Yeah, he's definitely got some lessons there.
1: So our next guest, who we've been talking about briefly, as (laughs) as you guys have all listened, is the infamous Ari Saul Foreman, who has, I would say, is like an undercover, subculture, conduit, uh, creator, like Ari's Instagram, I'm obsessed with it, and his philosophical and psychological breakdowns of advertising it's a very interesting way to look at advertising and really advertising is psychology plus capitalism in a weird way yeah, absolutely and um to have this very like analytical view uh, i find to be like incredibly interesting and um also just you know very helpful to the culture that somebody's like out there sort of like policing uh, reporting
2: yeah he's keeping tabs
1: reporting sure. on all of this stuff that a lot of people don't even see anyway let's dig in
2: We were rebranding it, Claudia's Comfortable
1: Podcast. Comfy, com- comfy, comfy town. We're going to
3: need a few more pillows.
1: Snuggly, snuggly wow. town. Why
3: on this podcast do we recline?
1: That would be a good idea. <laughs> are, you Jew? are you a Jew?
3: Uh, <laughs> I'm like, a fake Jew.
1: You're a fake Jew. Yeah. You're a, you I'm know. a
3: byproduct of that hippie era. F-
1: are, but aren't Jew. you, are, are you part Middle Eastern?
3: No, I've, people have called me Puerto Rican, Italian, and Middle Eastern Roman. Right, right, because we,
1: we are sort of like a racially ambiguous yes. type.
2: Right? Yes. So
1: exactly. what What? The are you? The
2: Jews? Uh, well, I, and
1: the Mediterranean. <laughs> you know, the Mediterranean, the olive complexion can be lots of different, yeah. you know. Yes. I wouldn't uh,
3: know.
1: It's <laughs> true. Come
2: from the other
3: part. I, I'm, of the I basically, world. I always tell people, I'm like, what do I need to be for you? <laughs> and then, you know, they're like, well, what do you mean? I'm well, like, well,
1: Foreman, I mean, your name.
3: Ari Sale Foreman pretty Jewish. I mean, Jewish. it sounds.
1: It's, it's, it's it, as Jewish
3: as it gets. Yeah, I, I was going think... to
1: say, yeah, Ari. I mean, there's, if you're a non-Jew named Ari, your parents well, are crazy. <laughs> right? I mean, you can basically bank on someone being Jewish. If yes. Your name is Ari. You can. Ari.
3: However, that is technically not the case. <laughs>
1: You crazy parents!
3: Yeah, well, you know this is what happens when um, World War II tensions make love.
1: (laughs) Oh yeah, so Uh, where? So your parents are originally from Philly.
3: Uh, Yes, they are. The the rest
1: of your siblings are from Philly. Correct. You are from California. So tell us the story about your parents. How the hell did your parents meet?
3: Uh, My mother was in the projects with three kids. Okay, uh, in South Philly Uh, from a previous marriage. um, Her Her husband was this Italian guy from like, you know, Italian market, South Philly, like serious, um, Nicky Scarfo, low level henchmen type guy or something. I don't know. And, uh, my father was this, uh, middle class, um, like lower middle class from the Northeast of Philadelphia, which is like the urban suburb. So I guess it would be like the Bronx, how the Bronx became the sort of suburbs. Um, and he, uh, ended his... Parents worked hard enough to get him into medical school. So she met him at a party. He was daring and going downtown. And uh, she met him at a party. And uh, it was some kind of love at first sight, which I think my mom was just like, gotcha, bitch. Right. And she was like, a Jewish doctor, guy in med school.
1: Doctor.
3: And uh <laughs> And, you know, she's in the project with these three Catholic kids. Right. And my mom's German Episcopalian. Uh huh. So she hopped on him, and uh, they packed up a v. They married and got, bought a VW van, drove out to Haight Ashbury area, and then I was conceived and born in Oakland. Ah. And then, uh, then they immediately, like soon after I was born, moved to L.A. And so I was raised in L.A. till I was twelve.
1: So I was reading about Mm -hmm. that you um, are sort of like a a self-proclaimed like street urchin.
3: Uh, yeah, kind of. I guess you could say that. So
1: how, I mean, that's the, <laughs> one of the seediest places in all of the land. How do, uh, how Hollywood one in
3: the let, 70s was fucking crazy. Yeah,
1: how actually. would one just let their little Jewish prince wander <laughs> into the face? In well, <laughs>
3: um, well my, my mom liked the idea of what my father represented. I think in her mind it could finally get her into, have her arrive in life. Okay. But she was... Ratchet as could be, and she was just really dysfunctional. And she had these three kids who were not my father's children. So that was always hanging over sure. his head. Right. And she yielded yielded it like a sword, you know. And, and eventually, my father just, my father's a submissive kind of type of guy. Mm-hmm. And he just immediately caved. And my mom ran the show. So my father went and earned money, and my mom just created the chaos. She had, I guess, always knew
1: A lot of women in those days, they were watching the women's movement, like, through, like, dirty diapers. You know what I mean? Like, they were, like, they had, like, (laughs) my mother, too. Like, I think she had so much resentment being, like, a stay-at-home mother. Right. When all these women are sort of, like, self-actualizing and, like, doing shit. And then they're like, you know what? You guys are, like, holding me back. But I, like, have to be this person. Let me tell like, you. Like,
3: you know? My parents are such a fucking weird duo to get together. First of all, individually. Are they still together?
1: Fuck
3: no. Oh, right. No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. Fuck, that did not last mu- long. Uh-huh. It, it lasted much longer than it should have. Um, But my parents, they, my mom was just too much. She was running my father ragged and then really a whole series of horrible things kind of happened between them that was really fucked up. Our house was always packed with drug addicts and alcoholics and transients and runaways. Every kind of animal you could ever imagine was in our house. Chinchillas (laughs) and fucking rabbits and dogs and stuff.
1: Drugs and dogs. And my Mm. dad somehow was
3: (laughs) finding a way to pay for all this by working. You know, he was a doctor at this point. Right. But, uh.
1: It must have been very...
3: It was fucking crazy. Yeah. And my mother, because my father had become a physician in her presence, essentially, then she kind of controlled a physician. Now, you can't take a family full of addicts and give them a doctor with a prescription pad and no fucking backbone. So basically what it became is uh, prescription pads laying around. And everybody was on every pill imaginable. My mom was fucked up. Damn. She was just in the room sleeping half the time, and I didn't know what was going on. You know,
1: I've re- I did a lot of research on you, and yeah. almost like every interview you give, like so much props to your mom.
3: I love my mom. I do, I know you do, shit, but you it's know?
1: very it's interesting. Like I, everything was sort of like my mom gave me my creative spirit. My mom taught me she this. Did. My mom, I I make belts because of my mom. Do you know Brad? Uh, is a, a secret like leather tooling belt? Remember well, when you went to your belts and your leather, and t- like your where? leather tooling. That was in the nineties, right? Late like, nineties. Yeah. When you go early nineties, early nineties. But Brad would be like, "I'm making these belts." I can't. Why and then you I read that Ari this. like makes belts, and I'm like, "Oh my god, wait till they beat.
3: Well, <laughs> you know, mine are a lot more soft and feminine compared to the. But the the people I know that worked in leather were always the most kinky. So I don't oh, know.
1: You know. <laughs> He loves, to, yeah. he loves to pound out
2: oh, that's right. I bet you do, <laughs> Pally I wasn't kinky enough That's why I had to get but
1: out of it I can't do this <laughs> I'm
3: just picturing Jimmy Fallon and, and Horatio Sands And that Leatherman skit That they were doing on SNL You ever see that? No. No. Oh man it, it, Those of you out there In listener land I will check You've gotta look it up it's, you know, it's their usual dynamic Of them laughing Through all their lines But it's fucking crazy uh, Jimmy Fallon plays this dude Who owns a leather shop And if you've ever been Into a leather shop It's weird yeah, it's weird in a leather shop. So I immediately got it because I.
1: You mean where <laughs> they sell the skins?
3: No, like the jackets, anything, oh, the just ja- like, like a leather oh, shop, yeah. Yeah. leather bags, leather jackets, leather I've skins, been to many boots. A leather shop in my day, and the, <laughs> and he's just playing this guy who walks around in the shop squeaking from leather. You know, leather squeaks. <laughs> And every time anybody needs anything, he calls Horatio Sands, which is sort of like his leather boy. Okay. And he just whips <laughs> him to get stuff. He's like, I Oof! do
1: remember that. I he's do like,
2: remember that. Ah! I missed it. I'll look it up. Actually.
3: It's pretty funny. Okay. And uh, <laughs> very much representative of a lot of my childhood that skits. Uh-huh. Whoa. Um, but, anyways, yeah, I guess to, to pull <laughs> fully back around, the, all the arts and crafts and all that stuff that uh-huh. I would do with my mother was facilitated by my father's. Um, low earning generosity okay and then eventually when that fell apart all it was hell in a handbasket instantly and uh, we ended up on some alcoholics couch and then we were almost for two years it just went you know went straight from the chaos of stability okay you know which shouldn't it, it was just it wasn't really that much of a transition okay it just was without a roof and things just got really crazy and Hollywood I mean Anybody that knows L.A. now and goes to Hollywood, it's like the Bridge and Tunnel kind of like oh,
1: totally. local
3: skeevy type of place. Hollywood still had a, a a hope of glamour. Back then, Hollywood Boulevard was packed. Mm. It was like the Times Square of Hollywood. you Sure, know? right. And, and every shop was the, packed.
1: Right. They, people go into the Chinese theater, or this and that.
3: Oh, head shops everywhere.
1: You remember when I worked in that bar in Cahuenga? Yeah, and, and that's that where I'm weird, from. That weird alley, I know. I, I yeah. first of all, when I, Brad and I both lived in L. A. in the early '90s, oh, and so that's you where know. that's where late '90s. You
3: lived in Hollywood I in the early '90s until
2: '96.
1: I moved home in '97. You're right. No, it was the mid '90s. I moved there I was in '95. We a moved year. there right. You will okay.
3: Damn. So
1: I, I moved to get L- your dates right. Right. <laughs> I moved to L. A. That's right. In 1995, the heat was on me, and I had to fucking get the fuck out of here. And I got a job working in this cool ass bar, but it was on Cahuenga and Hollywood. Yes. In this little alley. And yeah, I didn't have I know a that car, alley. and I would have to take the <laughs> bus from Los <laughs> Feliz down Hollywood Boulevard. It was like the number the way. one? I think it was the number one bus. Yeah. And I, like, it was the craziest shit I had ever seen being on the bus. First of all, yeah. L.A. is, like, warm as hell. And people were <laughs> in full-on, like, winter outfits yeah. with earmuffs and, like, Yeah, they can't figure it and, out. Right? But all the time, people would be making these, like, insane bird calls to get me to, like, turn my head. They'd be like, caw-caw, caw-caw, And I'd be like, oh, oh And then he'd be like, oh, I see you. I'd be like, oh, my God. <laughs> like, and I would fucking jump off the bus and, like, run into the bar. And <laughs> fancy <some food>. like,
3: <laughs> Tropical bird that you are.
1: Oh, well, yeah. So, and that was, okay, so that was mid-90s. Nice. And that was seedy.
3: Oh, yeah. yeah. So, like,
1: in the 70s, like, oh, yeah. yeah.
3: So, it was just chicken hawks and addicts and, for those of you who don't know what chicken hawks are, that's a... Uh, Pedophile people that yeah, hunt there's
1: children. a pedo that you know.
3: Yeah, and there were there used to be arcades all around, a couple bowling alleys in Hollywood, and it was man, it was a child's it was a child's paradise, right? Because
1: you're right, an unattended child, phew. like you're, in, well, you're thrust into like adult like cartoon world. Or um, something, right. I right? saw it
3: all before the age of ten, or really wow, before that's... the age of twelve. I see, I I can write eight books on what I saw. Before the age of twelve.
2: Wow! Okay, give us some wacky. Give us a wacky example.
3: Okay. At one point when we were homeless,
1: did you feel like you were in danger though?
3: I don't know. It's hard for me to remember because there was the stress of the dysfunction. Okay. And I, there was a certain anxiety that I felt because of my mom. Okay. And you know, at this time, I saw her as a hero, protecting me through all of this. Uh-huh. But you know, as you get a little old, you realize she put me in this yeah, situation. Right. You know, and right. there was no need for it. There really was options, many options out of that, but. Um, at one point, I don't know whose friends these were, but they were like 20 something, two women, and they were a couple. This was, I think, about 1980, maybe. And we, they were, my mom would always pull favors. Can we stay with you for a day or two or a couple of days and then burn, you know, like stay a couple extra days and burn that bridge out and make them enemies? But we were staying with this couple. And they were a very, and excuse my, uh, I guess the, the modern term would be aggressive, mm-hmm. but they were very masculine women and one was way more masculine and they were, it was 1980. So they were like punk rock. Right. So they had all black and spiked leather collars and just really, really sweet people. But I didn't know what was going on and we were staying, they were, it was like on Vine Street or something mm-hmm. they lived. So we go, we're in there. And uh, it's daytime, I'm hanging out, I'm sitting at a table, it's a little maybe square or something like this, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking, and there's like eight phones. Now, this is 1980, there's no cell phones, or nothing, these are like straight up Batman style phones, there's like eight phones <laughs> there with, uh, I don't even remember if they were rotary or touch tone. I assume touch tone. and one of them rings, right? And now mind you, these two women are very big, right. and very... Uh, masculine. I don't want to use any adjectives and insult anybody. And she picks up this phone and she goes, "Hello," hey. and I'm like, looking at her. She goes, "Oh, hi. Well, I'm about five foot four. <laughs> I'm blonde." I have thirty six breasts, and she's describing this like thirty six
1: breasts. What a you
3: <laughs> Cat. She, she was <laughs> she was describing this tiny petite little right. blonde bunny, right. and she she, she, that she was about three hundred pounds, right. yeah, yeah, and short spiky hair yeah, yeah, yeah. and a spike yeah. collar, and you t- pretty much masculine up until that point,
1: right? She and, it on.
3: and she and uh, I'm watching her.
1: She's the opposite of gay for pay
3: yeah it was it was and you know i had i had seen a lot of things at this right. point this is one i hadn't seen and i'm watching her and then she goes okay well hold on give me your credit card information she puts him on hold then she goes to another phone and she picks up that phone and calls a credit card company and runs him for 20 minutes on his credit card oh, God. and then so she proceeds to and i'm listening to her have sex on the phone with this guy and she's just very nonchalant she's like oh yeah baby oh yeah Yeah, push it in deeper this yeah and this and the." Phone. and how old are you 10?
1: But she's not like <laughs> participating. She's just talking.
3: Yeah, she's, she's just, just talking. talking. She's not like. She's totally fronted. It. Right, right, right. Okay. And so, you know, I, I had seen a lot of porn at this stage, mm-hmm. you know, so that wasn't shocking. You know, porn, it, porn in the 70s was revolutionary. It was like this liberating moment of women sort of doing what they want and these skeevy men exploiting it. And Hollywood Boulevard was filled with porn theaters. And when, they, when Caligula was released and Debbie Does Dallas and these sorts of things, they were moments. So when Hollywood used to have these movie premieres, there was also porn premiere type stuff. Right. And so I was very familiar with these films and my fa- and my uh, mother would get these VHS Betamax tapes and we would, she would let me watch them. She, she was this liberated, forward thinking woman no who, would not sh- who would not hide sex from her son and right. it was just chaos. And then I got three older siblings. And so my brothers are all liberated. So every time I go to a room, they're fucking and you know it's like somebody's got somebody and somebody's something
1: my god you're like little Michael Jackson <laughs>
3: it was wild and it, you know and the thing is it wasn't taboo and I didn't know it wasn't normal right. until you go to you know the neighbor's house literally the people next door were the uh, like the post-war perfect the Freemans right and they lived next door at this house you know where Holly Drive is yeah we were right there like right, right as you go past Franklin uh-huh. Holly Drive right there and the Freemans had, the, had green grass and a fence and everything, and we were next door. We had fucked this house up. The grass was dead. We had two cars on the lawn, and it was, the lawn was four inches wide. There's one in the driveway and one on the lawn, and the backyard was <laughs> fucked up. People were partying back there. It was chaos, and we had these people next to us, and they immediately built a fence.
1: They were just like, they had oh, like, hell no. They had
3: like the, the classic like white picket fence, but it wasn't white. It was just kind of aged to perfection, <laughs> rustic-looking. They put up an immediate like Home Depot tall, 10 feet, can't see through them. Right. And they put the studs of it and stuff on our side. So it was cosmetically better on theirs, which just screwed them over because then I could climb up on the studs and just harass oh, them. Of, right, right, right. And throw shit into their yard and hop over and get it and steal stuff you like, from you guys
1: em. got snacks? Um, Yo, okay, they so- used to give me snacks. <laughs>
3: they used to, they, they would see me outside and they felt so bad for me because my hair would be They're ratty. they like,
1: this child needs vitamins. They would. They would give me snacks.
3: They would give me these little care packages Aww. and like carrots and stuff. So
1: and- Okay, so now oh, you guys God. leave LA, you move back to Philly. Why? Mm-mm. We did not. Okay.
3: We were homeless, roaming around, and at one point, I guess my mom needed a break, and my dad wanted to see me, and she convinced me to to, to go see him, and I was into it, but I was terrified of airplanes, and uh, it was a whole ordeal at LAX dragging me onto a plane, and she threw me onto a plane to go visit my father. Had moved back to Philly like a year prior. Okay. And I went to visit him, and I just never got back on that fucking plane.
1: Good for you. Um...
3: Yeah, it was good for me. My phobia actually saved me. Um, At that point.
1: Oh, did you want to go home to your mother? And you just were like, I'm just can't be like flying around.
3: I think initially I did because I went to I went from the the chaos of that situation, which was very entertaining. And my my uh, my mother was very free and warm and loving in her own dysfunctional way. And my father was just cold like he had been so burnt out by my mother. He was so trashed. He just didn't recover. Right. And that fun guy that I kind of knew as a child was gone. And hmm. when I showed up in Philly, I had a roommate, and it was my dad. And it was the first time I ever had a room. And it was the first time, like, to myself right. or anything. So
1: now, so now you're, like, gone from, you know, this, this very sort of uh, crazy existence to now this very, like, quiet,
3: stoic. It's terrifying to me, to be honest with you. Okay. Stable was terrifying.
1: Right, no you're porn.
3: Like,
2: there's no porn in the house.
3: The no, <laughs> there's always resources, though. I've got, I've got my resources. So
1: now, so are you like, okay, kids? Let me show you guys how to fucking smoke crack. Come on, like, no, what are you doing? Like, when you go close. to Philly? Like, you know what I mean?
3: Well, the thing was, I, I moved to an area that we call G Town, which uh-huh. is Germantown, which would be kind of the equivalent of like East New York or something like that. Um, okay, or maybe the. A part of the Bronx. It's just like far away from sort of the, the more popular uh, neighborhoods of center city, which would be you know, equivalent to New York downtown. Okay. And it, it it's this neighborhood. I know
1: Fishtown. I know Fishtown.
3: Yeah, but that's like Williamsburg. Right. That is Williamsburg. Um, I'm to- opposite side of the city from that almost. Okay, Not quite, kind Philly's of. Philly's big. It's big. Yeah yeah, it's big. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a very big city. Okay. And uh, so um, my, the block that I arrived on was dead, quiet. There was an old folks home. There was like uh, the Ebenezer Maxwell mansion, which I think they designed the Adams family or Mm. the Munster family house after Mm -hmm. across the street. There was a field where they had ripped down some kind of old like 1800s building, apartment building. And then a couple of houses that finally sold. It was just a dead ass block. But two blocks up was was the drug market. Two blocks to the left was the Section 8 building that was basically the project's. And so my block seemed very kind of like if you if you were just arrive on my block like wow this is quite nice, man it was fucking hell up there, it was fuck and I was the only white dude around right, so you know it's a black neighborhood I'm the only white dude I'm arriving you know with vans and 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 some crazy shorts and like op shorts or something right 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 I literally didn't have any pants,
2: God (laughs) you know you know LA you get away
3: with a hoodie. You know, in a jacket right. with some shorts. Right. And it was ho- I was homeless, so I didn't arrive with anything. She was like, your dad will get you whatever the fuck you need. Right. And um, and so suddenly I was in this quiet situation with my dad who's going to bed early. He has to work all day. So I'm by myself all day at 12. Like, there's nothing. Literally... But is he,
1: like, registering you for school? Like, what's happening? Well, he d-
3: we weren't sure at first what was going on. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to go. I don't want to go back. And so suddenly at 40 years old, he was a father again. Right. And he was just kind of shook. And so he tried to enroll me in school, but I hadn't gone to school in two years. You know, I was homeless. I was just straight free. Wow. And uh, I might have gone to school maybe a couple weeks or a month at some point, but I was so dysfunctional. I didn't know how to be in school, to be honest with you. Right. I just really didn't know how to do it. And so he found this cheap, hippie, private uh, 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 junior high that was in the neighborhood. And somebody had created it in like the 60s. And by now it was, you know, turning into something else. But it was cool and it was full of like local kids. So there was like kids that were really in the struggle, poor kids on welfare. And then there was like hippie private school kids that were coming from middle class, upper middle class families. And it was this weird juxtaposition. It was a tiny little house mm. because they knew if they threw me in public school, I'd be fucked. Right. So they threw me in there and it was great. And they put me back a grade. They want to put me back two grades. So they split the difference, put me back a grade and uh, it was the perfect transition for me to get ready for public school. So to go to like the real neighborhood shit, you know, right after junior high. And it was it was all just shock to me. Like I w- literally, I went from the streets of Hollywood and the chaos of like punk rock and, and, and funk and disco and, and, and uh, metal, heavy metal and all this shit was on the streets there to G-Town. It was hip hop.
1: Mm. Suddenly
3: 82, I was literally on hip hop's doorstep. Right. And like, you know, all these local MCs, every party was just filled with dudes rapping because there wasn't enough records in 82, really, you know, That's you couldn't right. fill up six hours. That's worth right. Of yeah. So there'd be an hour's worth of actual Sugar Hill records or something. Right. And then dudes just rapping all night.
1: I mean, Philly uh, uh, boasts, you know, the original gangster rapper. Mm-hmm. Schooly Schooly D, DD.
3: Yeah, man. Parkside Killers.
1: I but you know I, I could I could argue that there. like a just ice was probably really the first
3: he like I, th- really
1: like lived it <laughs> <laughs> like he would like perform yeah. and then like rob everyone when he was done. <laughs> well, like, like, okay, Schooley, over. Give me Schooley's a
3: misleading. Jewelry. If you ever meet Schooley, he seems like the nicest, softest guy in the world, but he's from the gangs of Parkside, yeah, out West no, Philly. No, 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 no. He's a,
1: he's I, oh, he's OG.
3: I went to a party in '85 out his way, and it was on. It was like on on the edge of a park. And when we came out of this party, suddenly there was a mob of 40 dudes that came out from behind trees in every direction, started fucking everybody up and robbing everybody. It was an absolute riot melee of robbery. And
1: huh. it was
3: like them dudes out that way. And they chased me down. I was chasing a trolley, trying to get on this trolley with some of my boys in the middle of a boulevard, just running towards North Philly, trying to get out of Westfield.
1: Philly. Oh, don't you love urban culture?
3: <laughs> <laughs> Man, it was fucking crazy. I'm telling you, It was just one chaotic situation after another.
1: so okay so now you're like in in this foreign land with this foreign mm-hmm. music with these foreign people and now you're starting to like kind of get down right yeah. you're kind of getting into it you're I like lo- what is this it's kind of exciting get
3: involved or get lost you know so
1: you're skateboarding
3: i was skateboarding but i immediately put that away because there was a whole lot of cowabunga dude and you're writing graffiti uh i had in L.A., I started writing. I started I writing gang write, graffiti. I
1: heard you were writing Des.
3: Your name. I was, was yeah, Des in Philly. Um, I wrote a few things before. I wrote my name. I wrote you know a couple other. Yeah, because R retarded, would be
1: like a cute, cute little yeah. flowy tag. Or yeah,
3: that would be great. But uh, somehow it just didn't seem hip hop or put a or graffiti. Right
1: on it. Like.
3: <laughs> Had my mom turning over in her grave? Are you kidding me? She's like
1: make the eye a hollow or something you know what i mean or like a can't lay like a Hanukkah I mean candle you, something even, like re- it could be good
3: <laughs> i never knew that i had any jewish re- you know anything jewish about me
1: i just didn't know because you know my
3: my my siblings are are have italian names right and my mother has this german name and my father's name was just weird his name is lanny that's his actual... It's not a nickname. It's his first it name, of Lanny. Sounds
1: Jewish. <laughs> and
3: I, I I had no reference for Jews. I didn't okay. have any Jews around me right. in, in L.A. or in Hollywood. I did, but I didn't know. Right. There was nobody that was, you know, wearing that stuff. And my mother, being Episcopalian, the house was that way. Right. It was Christmas and, you know, crucifixes mm-hmm. and all of that. And uh, she wasn't religious, but she had her cultural thing. So, you know, suddenly I'm in Germantown, and I still didn't really realize the grasp of it until my father takes me to see his family for the first time and they're jewish right and i'm like what the fuck is this shit (laughs) who is me (laughs) (laughs) and it was no and the thing was because my mother's german episcopalian she's a wasp Sure, and they they were very sweet to me, but they hated my mother and they hated that my father had married a non-Jew. Of course. So I was this byproduct Jews of, of the are such
1: sin. Elitists? No, moms. but my mother's side
3: was the same shit.
1: Yeah, they of were course. worse. Dirty Jew, of
3: course. Yeah, fucking yeah. dirty no, Jew. And I was I like, know. wait a minute. So the Jews don't consider me Jewish because my mother's not Jewish. So I'm not a Jew, except for everybody who hates Jews. I'm a Jew, but to the Jews, I'm not a Jew. I was like, I was like. Oh I was like, life. <laughs> Wait,
1: it's always like that. <laughs> I immediately became
3: atheist, okay. and was like, "Well, guess what? I'm the Church of None, and was, you know, my pew is the streets."
1: And indeed, okay. So you're now you're you you were writing graffiti in LA, and then you like decided to start writing in Philly. Like, when did you like start really like noticing graffiti? so You were writing gang graffiti. What gang were you
3: in? In I L- I wasn't in it. I didn't understand it in L. A. But I'm in I, my own gang. But <laughs> right before, I guess, by like 1980, I was living on. Fountain and Beechwood, mm-hmm. with near Leconte Junior High there, and that was all Mexican there at that point, and it still is. If you go around at Las Palmas Market, mm, you know, yeah. on, on Fountain, okay. that's still Mexican. Like Vermont
1: and like yeah, like Off Cuanca, okay. Off
3: of Gower okay, all that was was you know Mexihood, okay. You know, it was it was uh, Clanton Fourteenth Street in some areas, and then it was Rebels. Rebels Thirteenth Street was was really the gang around there that ran shit. So. Um, we were playing like, we, had, we basically had gang skirmishes with the peewees. You know, all the the, the, the first level, the, the 10, 11, 12-year-old right. Mexican gang members, and we were having rock fights, and it was, you know, I was but learning graffiti. The,
1: But graffiti. Let's talk more about it. But that's what it was. All
3: around there was just straight-up Chicano gang graffiti. Okay. And it was all that classic boxy-style stuff, and that was fascinating to me, and I was attempting horribly to try and do some of that so stuff. So
1: you never really like were like a real writer
3: I, in Philly. I was in
1: Philly. You were, so yeah. what but were you writing when you were in Philly design?
3: 29, Design twenty nine. Des, Des, desk, desk, desk right. 29. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, but that, uh, there was a few things in, in Germantown. Germantown is very geographically locked. So it was, like I said, it's like the Bronx. Okay. So there were writers that were really just known there. And there was a couple writers that were all city, so to speak. Um, that went out and used the the subway system to go to different parts of the city. And in Philly, we have a very different culture of graffiti. It Like L.A., uh, Philly and L.A. are really the only two cities that evolved graffiti at the same time and even before New York in their own ways. So they weren't influenced by New York. Right. L.A. had the Chicano graffiti that was coming from the 40s and 50s Sure. and evolved into the spray can sort of version. And Philly had old gang culture from the 60s and they had developed these styles you know the broadway elegant that right. you know you guys mm-hmm. know from top cat top cat came up from philly sure and then quickly from there where people were developing these things called wickets and tall prints right and the smiley faces that you you know are, people are now becoming familiar with which are you know 40 50 years old at this point
1: yeah philly has its own
3: it's a history. different thing it's, right. it's it's almost like an island right it's a it's like you know some island off of australia or something you know
1: it's um, incredibly interesting to me.
3: And the, the local the local writers, Purvis and and um, Frizz and Tron, and this dude Istro, who was all city, somehow had connections to G-Town. and there was uh, just a, a bunch of dudes that then started coming up behind and Neon and Bixby and Chucky and uh, there was dudes that were very specific to my neighborhood. And they were, you know, doing this sort of hybrid Philly stuff. These like, these hands that were sort of morphing. And uh, when people started piecing in a a different way in Philly, like when they started doing, getting away from tags that were sort of evolving into pieces and getting into pieces, they were called New Yorkers.
1: Huh. So They weren't called
3: pieces like, yo, you do, yo, he did this big New Yorker. Because Philly is a bombing culture. Sure. We bomb.
1: And it still kind of is. It right? still is. Right. Yeah. It's,
3: it's, it's, it's almost like you're a sucker if you piece. Right. You know, there's dudes well, that do graffiti like that art, too. but. I mean, sh- Yeah. <laughs> true, true. And, it's, and Philly, it, your hands have to be intimidating. It's like in New York, you, people have very beautiful signatures almost, you know, and these hand styles are just gorgeous, but they don't, they don't intimidate. And hand styles in Philly are meant to intimidate. They
1: are. They're scary. They're yeah. pointy. They're, they're aggressive. Point, they're very they're aggressive. Right, yeah.
3: And if you don't have that mastered, it takes years to master certain styles. And if you don't have that, what kind of fucking writer are you? What kind of, you know, what kind of...
1: So uh, you got through high school and now you want to go to college?
3: Yeah, well, I I would... I barely made it through high school because, you know, I'm still reeling from dysfunctional same, habits. same. Yeah, yeah, and... um. I made it through somehow. I think it was just because so many people were so stupid that I just you
1: shined, I, you shined.
3: Yeah, well, I would le- I wouldn't do anything <laughs> until the last you know week, and I'd turn in some work that, that was, was my a plus plus, and it would give me a C or a D, and I, I be would be like pass. my
1: extra credit yeah. is on pizoint. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just because I haven't been here all semester, you're gonna fall, you're gonna like fail me because of that, and then they would feel bad for me and just like be like, well, all
3: right. the worst <laughs> part about it was is I'm I'm in G town. And I'm going to school in West Philly, so basically, you know how the Warriors movie was? How these motherfuckers are in the Bronx yeah, yeah, yeah. and they gotta get back to Coney Island. Oh, that was yeah. me every day, oh, twice okay. a day. I had to go from one end of the city to the other through every fucked up neighborhood. At, through I had to go through two subway systems and then onto a bus, and it was just it was just like literally ducking, diving, you know, walking to the ends of platforms, try, just trying to get out of the way because this white dudes just weren't taking these routes. Right. And they weren't around and white people weren't in hip hop. Certainly not in Philly. you know? Right. And it was, I stood out like a sore thumb. There was no way for me to play it off. Occasionally I could pretend to be Puerto Rican, but even that, Puerto Ricans. There's uh, no Puerto
1: Ricans in Philly.
3: There is in North <laughs> Philly. <laughs> <laughs> They're in one area. Really? They, and it was like on Fifth Street. They'd go all up and down Fifth Street and even down into South Philly, which was this weird pocket where they were sort of sandwiched around Italians mostly and some Irish. And it was, you know, so I basically was just like this albino walking around out of out of place. And then, you know,
1: we're trying to get to your career. Come on. Oh, okay. Like yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I like so
3: I like this warrior all, story. All these all these things. I are,
1: mean, you have like a wildest, the wildest.
3: It's pretty crazy, and and you know, I have friends who had it way worse than me, but it was very different. You know, it's a, it's just, you know, I, I basically. To sum up my shit is that I never grew up anywhere. So I was constantly trying to adapt in different neighborhoods from Mexican gangs to, you know, to, to, uh, Neighborhood gangs in Philly, black, there's no gang culture in Philly at this point, okay. but it's just block to block. So there's areas that I had to try and deal with. And so you learn to sort of speak languages differently, act differently, walk differently, sit differently. Survival and, uh, tactics right. are very and, different. Like,
1: and approach people differently.
3: Very differently. And it's people want to be approached in their comfort zone. You need to speak their language, learn their cultural things. And you have to say things to people that lets them go, oh, okay. You get a pass. Okay. Especially in a city that was so segregated like Philly. Correct. You know, unlike New York, which I think is a, so much more integrated. Philly, uh, LA is very segregated very too, segregated. even to this day, it's very yes, segregated. Indeed. Um, and so that that really is it. So even g- moving all the way up into my career, all those things from the street, all those nuances of cultural diversity, of speaking to people who are gay, uh, transgendered, gang people, the drug addicts, I mean, any, you name it, I went through it and had to deal with people. And so by the time you get up into my career, I know how to translate all kinds of things. I You'd think that that would be very uh, useful to corporate America, someone who could actually talk several languages and look at people, read them and understand them. Yeah, look,
1: I talk street, very, uh, many different city streets.
3: And just being able to understand how people feel when they don't share what they feel. Right which is it's it, my I I'm not looking at it. I'm a little dude and so there was never a fair fight it was always eight dudes trying to roll on me you know beat me up and so my whole thing became way more intellectual and cerebral i had to survive using my brain because i wasn't going to fight my way out of anything and that makes you read people from a mile away and you can see them right away you know what's coming that's
1: a lot that's a lot for a child yeah, that's a man. lot of responsibility
3: it really it in and, and it it's something that has sculpted me to this day that um, I know how to be what people need to be, but I I, I will walk away to a certain—I will humor people and get away fast mm. because I get intellectually starved after a while. It just became—there It, it there was this weird thing where I understood everybody, and I became so analytical, and I just felt— And it's not like I felt better than anybody because there's people making more money and in better situations than me all along that route and still is. But I I would get intellectually starved. I would talk to people and and they would regurgitate opinions, knee jerk shit, giving you the same shit you've heard 400 times from 400. You know that homeless dude that walks up to you is like, look, man, I'm trying to get on this bus. Right. And I don't have any money. That line. People say it about politics, graffiti, hip hop, anything you can imagine. People regurgitate the same fucking opinions out at you. And you just at some but, point and the people aren't it's like,
1: thinkers. They're not thinkers. No. They're like, oh, this is this is a good enough um, you know passable statement. I'm just going to adopt
3: this. And and it's it's just human nature. It's what people do. It's tribalism. It's like get into a tribe, learn the things that you're supposed to learn, and regurgitate. You know, and stand on your side of the street and spew.
1: I would mm-hmm. tell you, and I'm sure. Are you a parent? Hmm? Are you a parent? Uh, pseudo. So Brad I've, and I are both both parents. And if you spend time. With with children yes it's so scary because Mm. they really want to copy each other and they they. want to sort of like fit in blend in like there there's this acceptable formation of who they are via someone else and it's so human of course you want to rail. Instinct. You, right, and Just, you, but you want to rail against it, like yeah. being sort of the opposite of that. Like that's not... But that's how that they what learn. you want? Well, if they want that, I want that. And you're like, right. I'm going to fucking kill you, <laughs> <a> little <laughs> motherfucker. Anyway.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, but
1: it's like, it really is like a programming thing in in mammals. Like there is. Like to sort of like follow.
3: So, and I learned early on with kids. I had to deal with a lot of kids and then having um, somewhat... Co-parented a, a kid. Um, I, I learned early that kids did don't talk to kids like kids. immediately you can set yourself. You will get instant respect and set yourself apart from all other adults the minute that you walk up to that kid and treat him like he's forty-five. Right. And I talk straight to the kid, and, I, and I, I'm straight up. And it's not I'm not necessarily going to give them information that they can't handle yet, but I'm going to talk to them in a way and a nature, and I'm going to say, look. This is what it is, and it immediately—the I, I, way that I could bond with anybody in any community to a certain degree, you know, more or less—with kids, immediate, because I understood what ki- the frustration the kids felt. I was a frustrated child who was trying to be heard and trying to talk amongst people who were so fucked up and dysfunctional. They had no business not talking to me as an adult, um, and it was it—it it, it sort of made this philosophy for me. So immediately, I was good with communicating with kids and guiding them. Straight from the gate, and so I, there's a come whole come over tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not an easy time. I'm not. Actually, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's it's as a parent sometimes you are absolutely crippled to talk to your kids because you represent everything that that they're trying to rebel against or Correct. deal with or break the rules of. Sometimes you need somebody that you know, like, look, give somebody a green light to be like, look, do what you got to do, man. Get in there and talk to my fucking kid, and just. You know, somebody that you trust that is like you, that thinks the way you do and is going to guide them the way you do. They just need the alternative. It
1: it takes a goddamn village. It does. (laughs) It It really really does. does. It really does. It takes
3: a functional village because I lived in a dysfunctional one. And that don't work. (laughs) I mean, uh, yeah.
1: So now you're going to college. You're an artist. What? You're a designer. You're you're dabbling in like hip hop uh, flyer making. Exactly. Okay.
3: Uh, uh, there was that moment, you know, in hip hop where it was sitting next to and adjacent to and meshing with house music. Oh so yeah, there was,
1: that was a good time. That was those were the days. Yeah, it was fun times, <laughs> was, man. Yeah. And in
3: Philly, it wasn't like New York where you guys just had an endless amount of venues. Philly, we only had a couple of venues. No, so New everything York, had, would happen.
1: New York, nobody wanted to play hip hop.
3: Oh well, yeah, I guess
1: it, like oh, hip hop didn't have unlimited venues. When well, it was I a mean, subculture. We didn't have
3: venues. Period. Right. Okay. So it was like it, I know. mean
1: I was there when hip hop like kind of came to Manhattan and it was like slim <laughs> it was like Slim Pickens but everybody was like hungry for it so that's it, great it paid you know what I that's mean the like fun parties was, when right, people yeah, are hungry those were the, like those yeah. were the parties and stuff everybody's
3: but, jaded now but you know? I
1: don't think it was like uh, like come on down hip hoppers like <laughs> yeah. and then remember when I when I used to work at the bars on. Uh, On Avenue A and uh, Coney Island High and stuff. And they'd be like, oh, put Claudia behind the bar. hip hop night or something. And I'd be like, (laughs) oh, I'd be like, it would always be like mayhem or something. She gets it. Yeah. No, well, it was my shit. But like I was, I I worked in rock clubs on purpose. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Less stress, I'm sure.
1: Right. I wanted to party in the hip hop club and I wanted to work in the rock club.
3: (laughs) Man, I, okay,
1: that's r- the truth. <laughs> so you now you're making flyers. You're getting all into yeah. the pop, You're going to go to college to be a designer because you're you've uh, you're using design markers, right?
3: Yes, okay. like everybody, right. you know, graffiti writer trying to like, oh, I like letter form. I'm going to make logos.
1: So now you go to fucking college. You're going to do logos. Okay, yeah. how does fucking on the go happen?
3: The, the magazine. The magazine.
1: Okay, so let's go well, from like flyers to on the go. Uh,
3: I. And we're not
1: like it can be like the quick version because then I want to just talk about on the go a little bit.
3: Uh, um, I had been writing graffiti all through the '80s, uh-huh. and uh, in that process, um, I was never the the writer who had a shit ton of rep. I would just have my little. Moment. I like bombing because it was disruptive. You know, it was just like fucked up. Sure. And you know, the minute that it was like painting with the lights on, I, that shit did not interest me at any level. And so I just liked the adventure of graffiti.
1: Sure. And you know, and
3: letter form. So it's two things I like. And I ended, so I did enough for enough people to notice that I was around with my busted hand and, you know, like trying to figure it out. And uh, I had, I had, Espo was getting known at this point, uh, Steve Powers. Uh And uh, at some point, you know, I'd been going to graffiti writer meetings and stuff in North Philly. And at some point we met. And I think it was, I think it was in 85.
1: You're like, you want to get out of here? This sucks.
3: (laughs) No, that shit was fascinating. (laughs) Because in Philly, it was just like, you know, it's just oh, a very different... I got our
1: crew meeting, I'll like, kill myself.
3: No, these dudes were like... It was basically like people would meet to fight. So oh, it was just like oh, oh, it was like chicken well, fights, you That know? sounds exciting. Um, and, uh, and so I linked up with Espo. So we became friends, but we were we were from very different cultures. Very, very different cultures. But our common denominator was that creative process, the fact that we were kind of fucking weirdos in our own communities, you know? And graffiti. So that was our common denominator and so we would talk on, on, on that level and we would laugh and snap on each other or whatever and at some point he started a, a, a newsletter called On the Go in 1989 and that was just like a black and white Xerox cut and paste kind of a thing that he would do on 1117, fold and put a stamp on it and send it to people. Um, and then you know, soon enough, uh, I'm in art school uh, at a tech school and um
1: you're like let me lay this out
3: and my my (laughs) friend from g-town had started coming he he was living downtown so espo knew my boy norm and norm um was just this crazy ass fucking character and so there were there was all these points of connection where we were starting to deal with the be around each other's lives more me and steve and uh he was like look i want to turn this into a real magazine it's like you want to help out and be my partner and i was like fuck yeah and you know, at this point, I'm doing logos, flyers. You know. Uh, so, what year is this? This is, uh, I don't know, ninety-one, I guess.
1: So this is the this this was a kind of a special time mm-hmm. in the culture, yeah. where suddenly streetwear is 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 starting yes. to bubble and be born, right? And people are visually sampling other people's logos. Yeah. Philly's Blunt first comes yes. and then uh, Fresh Jive with the with the Jive Tide shirt, right? Yeah, very ravey hip hopy. And I remember the first time I ever saw On the Go, and I was like, ooh, this looks like a crazy like toothbrush ad. Yes. And like, <laughs> and I was like, but th- it was, you know, pop art uh mixed with like you know, subversive psychology in the layout, like it was very yeah. interesting and very sort of uh, ahead of the curve. But what was sort of happening, mm. popping, like bubbling up, fresh jive in L.A. Yeah, um, you know, PNB. and was in the and, ether, and you know, right, yeah. and and then you're then on the go and right. stuff. So like
3: it was, and we're we're in Philly, mm-hmm. and Philly has its own culture. You know, and it's influenced by you know pop culture everywhere, and we're two-hour drive from New York, but it, it you know it couldn't be any more different. And so, I me having come from L.A., I always had an idea that there were things going on outside of Philly. Most of my friends in Philly didn't know anything existed outside of Philly. They okay. really didn't. There was Jersey, you know, and who goes to Jersey? You know, it no. was like there was Camden, which was the poorest city in America, and was just like a dead zone, abandoned churches. It was so you just you just stayed in Philly. So there was really Philly was evolving in different ways. there was sort of like you said fresh jive and and the things were happening in new york and l a were were finding their way into Philly, but the people who were you know real 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 Philly just did philly stuff okay and so there we were we were this we were seeing that there was this global voices or these local voices that were emerging globally, mm-hmm. and there was not one for Philly. the source magazine uh you know which was Dave Mays and and John Schechter. Mm-hmm. John Schechter's from Philly, oh, and so there we had this point of pride that no one knew about because essentially the source started in New York by a Philly dude and a Boston dude, um, and so we we, we liked that idea, but it was doing nothing to speak. Do you remember for John
1: Schechter, his rap album?
3: Oh yeah, <laughs> BMOC.
1: Yes, the the Harvard the, the uh, Harvard boys, the Harvard boys. Yeah, <laughs> man, and yeah. and John and I, I really.
3: I really admire John because this was somebody who who managed to just be bigger than Philly and bigger than so many things. And and it seemed like a dream to do that. And I was already, like I said, I was making leather medallions and leather jackets and painting and doing rhinestones. And I had all these sort of like classic hip hop skills as a cobbler almost, you know um young delancy
1: wave over here right (laughs) i was on it quick my mom was an arts and
3: crafts woman so i was like if i couldn't find it or afford it i gotta make it yeah and it was always janky as fuck (laughs) but it worked and it was better than anybody else had because there was nothing right we had our versions of like the dapper dan kind of movement and they were different they were very different down there uh and it was it was a beautiful thing and it's something that's gone and will be forgotten forever so
1: how so how why did you guys migrate to new york are you just coming to new york to like drop a bomb and eat food and go to the clubs and then
3: like drive home like well it was different because like steve was the type to go to cbgb's uh uh-huh and i was the type of dude that would have gone go to latin quarters Mm. you know we had very different social lives from that.
1: Like, I'm mean, um, here at 14th Street at three o'clock and we can go home. <laughs>
3: yeah. It, you know, I was, you know, what was comfortable for me, I was more comfortable being somewhere I could listen to Teddy Pendergrass and, and Luther Vandross than, you know, he would listen to, I guess, you know, Bob Dylan and some punk rock. And, okay. And I, we could appreciate both. We both loved each other's stuff. It's just, I that wasn't my comfort zone and that wasn't his comfort zone, you know? So, that the magazine On The Go reflected that. And, It was the magazine was really Steve's chaos, his his beautiful sort of poetic wordsmithing chaos, and me just jumping in on that and going, "Oh, okay, I'm going to bring my voice to that," and my through my style, my design, and uh, we were instantly in a in a in a different category almost because the other you know graffiti media at that point they were really playing to sort of the politics of graffiti comparatively. And that they would show the best of the best, the dudes that could do production pieces like the FX dudes, and it was sure. just like that. Just you that's know, right.
1: There was just one. It, one was, side good. Of it, it right. was good. It was good stuff. Throw-offs.
3: And we were just throw. You know, we would show. There was wasn't enough content. It wasn't like we could pull. There was no internet to pull stuff off of, and we we realized like Philly had some dudes that were just wrecking shit. And some of them were just absolute professionals, as good as it could get. But to the, to the larger graffiti world outside, they look at our stuff and think it was toy and think it was garbage. Sure. And they didn't realize that, you know, it would take you 10 years to get to this point in this skill. To them, they, they were dismissive of it. And so the stuff that we showed that was New York or similar to L.A. stuff or that had that sort of New York discipline as they saw it, went over well but we started showing people you know tags and hands and, and stuff from philly and throw-ups and old school stuff and then we were like well you know what this dude is bombing in wichita kansas and he's a toy but he's up so we're putting him in and people hated us for that it's like garbage and on the go it's like look man how do you fill up all those pages with the the politics of new york we weren't getting you know these dudes to just come down and open up their photo albums to us So we immediately, we were putting Philly on the map in our own way and acknowledging the world, but we were also acknowledging the parts of the world that were being ignored by New York and LA and other places. We really, we felt it was like, well, if we're not going to be accepted and we're just going to go fucking ham the other way. And we were always this sort of like, even when we moved to New York because we needed to move here because of advertising, it was just if we were going to try so and, it
1: was for the magazine you yeah, were like strictly we that. like this is a professional business we need to come here and take meetings yeah. nobody's coming to Philly
3: nobody's coming to Philly right. and if we're going to grow this if it's going to be real and Steve really is just has that tenacity about him okay you know Steve is he's just he's a born leader and he you know he could he can lead you into the bank and lead you off a cliff mm-hmm. but he's a born leader and you just have to get down and go and his thing was he had a a a friend from his way, who's a writer who had become like Joe Wall Street and was renting, uh, he had a sublease in um, somebody's rent control in Soho. So, Steve, that somebody got killed in the apartment next to the dude, got set on fire, and the dude freaked out. And that's what the dude was like, I'm leaving, you want the apartment? And Steve was like, fuck yeah. And he immediately moved up with his girl into Soho, you know, into his tiny little space. And, and uh, he was like, yo, get up here as soon as you can. And I'm down in Philly in my struggle, like, dealing with Rough House Records, you know, having done Rough House Records logos and crisscross, and I'm down there starving. And, you know, my other boy who had gone to Pratt, he was from Philly.
1: So are you not, like, signing big contracts or, like... No, nothing. Like... Man, I'm straight
3: we were, we were The whole time we were making on the go in Philly, we, we have this local uh, store down there called Wawa, if you know familiar yeah, with that. Yeah, it's like Seven yeah, yeah. Eleven, but yeah, with actual real Wawa. food and shit. We, yeah, And... uh. We would just roll with the around, birds,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we would
3: roll around. It's, yeah, it looks looks yeah. amazing. Why was the shit? Yeah, but um, we would roll around with our portfolio cases and bags and just rack TV dinners and frozen chicken and anything we could and fill it up in my refrigerator. Cook whatever didn't fit in the fr- in the freezer, and you know we were working jobs to pay our rent and and do stuff with on the go, and we had to rack food and it was it was crazy. I mean, we were doing all kinds of scams. To just make it work. And it looked on, you know, when people looked at the magazine, even though it was really unprofessional, it was quite a production.
1: Well, yeah, it's a lot of
3: work. And it was, it wasn't uniform. We were experiment. I treated every every other spread as a flyer. It's like, huh. have at well, it. Well, that's the have thing. I
1: don't remember reading anything. And I remember the only way I got hip to it mm-hmm. was somebody told me that I had a piece in it of a wall that I never flicked and I was like I have oh, to shit. find this magazine <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> we I don't have a, that. I don't have like a flick of this and I the like I was like whoa this is wild yes yeah, it is and it was so much more visually interesting than anything I was uh, looking at at that time especially yeah. with graffiti cuz I remember uh, crazy kings and like yeah, uh, they put like a mil- yeah. Right, right. They would put like a million tiny pieces, and they look like little like postage stamps, and you couldn't really see them. Mm-hmm. It didn't give you any like room to like breathe and right. look at it or yeah. be able to see the scale or. And so you know, here it was sort of like bam, you know.
3: We sh- we just it was sort of like what do we do with these things? You know, like we want to show these pictures and it's just so boring to treat it like a coffee table book, which is, you know, this on a white page or something. So, and I just wanted to be creative. And so we would brainstorm and hodgepodge things and cut and paste. It was like Photoshop one, you know, at that point I was using, I think the first issue of on the go that we did digitally, I used like a Mac SE 30. It was like that little <laughs> yeah, yeah, black yeah, yeah, and white yeah. screen, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then, like, Steve was working in a copy shop, and I had gotten, I had graduated school, and I was working in a stat house. And, and we would go in at night, and we'd let ourselves in and just use the computer to design the magazine wow. in the dark. Wow. You know, when, after hours.
2: Stats. Stats. I stats. Stats, stats <laughs>
3: are basically like photographs that people would use for commercial purposes, like ads in, in newspapers and stuff. So, I was in there. so it
1: was like Getty Images before Getty Images. No, no, it's The no. way to lay it out. You what do you mean? It's a photograph- mechanical, part yeah. of the mechanical oh, process. Oh, it's part of a mechanical process. Yeah.
3: Like, you know how you would pull an image or scan an image okay. now and put it on into a layout? Back then, you needed somebody to take the photo and make it camera ready. Huh. And so there was different, you might need to make it into like a mezzotint or some kind of pattern so that it could right. then be photographed, burned to a plate, and then printed by a newspaper. What are we
1: going to do in the earth? It sizzles up and there's just a few people and stat. they're like and we're gonna they, use stat I'm gonna gotta be <laughs> go back you gotta go back like that's like you know
3: I, I a lost sucked.
1: art It's a fucking lost art
3: I could not make a clean mechanical to save my life <laughs> and the minute I saw the computer in they they were building a computer lab and I had never worked I hated computers because they weren't video games I was like right. there's video games and then there's DOS <laughs> and then they were building this, this lab and it had like those SE 30s and I saw Letter forms being pulled in this cheesy application called TypeStyler.
1: I remember, type remember that Tyler. thing,
3: and I and I I saw it and I was like, oh shit! And that yeah. was that was it. Apple, Steve Jobs, and TypeStyler changed my life forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I would, you know, you don't have to be talk about being thankful. I'm thankful to that moment that changed my life.
1: <laughs> and I'm thankful for Brad. Brad made the first. Uh, vector claw in the '90s for me, nice. and taught me how to use Illustrator. Was, <laughs> it,
3: oh, wait, <laughs> was it Illustrator or Freehand?
2: That was Illustrator. But do you I remember had, Aldus
3: yeah, Freehand? I remember Freehand. There yeah. was like they were competing. It was yeah, like yeah. Illustrator one and Aldus two or something.
1: Right. But do you remember you like you you had to put this program Streamline when you had to like when you were trying right. to get vectorized. I still use that. You still they. You can make Streamline work on your computer. Well, they,
3: now it's just integrated into Illustrator. Right, right. It's right. called it's, uh, uh, Live Trace. Live Trace, yeah. correct. But, but it's the exact same thing. Right.
1: But yes, but it was like a like Streamline was like the bomb because right. nobody like really knew about it. Oh and, man, I... yeah, and I was like, I was.
3: If you look at On the Go, you can see you could see like oh Quark, oh PageMaker, right. oh <laughs> Illustrator, oh Photoshop, oh that when the filter finally when layers finally popped up, right. it was like.
1: Ah, oh, when InDesign came out and quark just got flicked to the side, right? Thank you're God, like man. Ding, text box bye. We're probably
3: totally losing your listeners right now.
1: <laughs> They're, They're like, like what the fuck kinda nerd old people talking about quark.
3: <laughs> Look, basically, let me let me explain this to you. Quark was MySpace,
2: <laughs> and imagine, imagine that
3: all the all the social media and all the apps you use now. But the one thing, the one app that kept going was MySpace, and it was it didn't make sense. Imagine using MySpace now. That's what it was Quark was in its I day. Mean, it, was it was like was... everything had evolved, but Quark, and we still had to use it. It's like, what the? F- why am I on MySpace right now?
1: Oh my God, it was bad. Um okay so now you're here you're like gonna really give it like the the 100% New York City advertising push you're gonna okay so then what's happening are you getting advertisers?
3: We're getting advertisers. We were getting advertisers so before. Who's
1: advertising and on the go?
3: Man, the, the just like pony sneakers? No, it was like the first real ads we had was like GFS Gurb Futura Stash. It's like I will we we will forever, ever, ever and we always talk about it amongst ourselves how thankful we are towards Stash and and Futura, specifically Gurb, you know, but yeah. those two because they were they, they were very active with us. Well and they,
1: they knew they their they, they just believed uh, yeah. they
3: believed. And I don't know that they I don't know that they thought that they would get any real mileage out of it. Huh. That, that it would pay for itself, but they just believed and they supported and you know Future uh, and Stash to this day, man, they can't they can't do no wrong by me, right? Because if you know if it weren't for those guys just going like, I don't know if this is gonna be worth it, but fuck it, we got the money, let's do it, okay? And just buying an ad, and that their their ads showed record labels because New York record labels recognized them, sure, because they were known for doing their thing. And they were like, oh, if they're in there, okay, we're going to put, you know, then Tommy Boy was in.
1: Mm. And
3: then, you know, uh, Priority was in or somebody, you know, it was. And Steve was up there running the gift of gab. Right. And it was happening. And so things just started, you know, went from 20 pages to 40 pages to 60 pages to 100 pages. So
1: when... Did the bubble burst for the magazine? Was it when the whole like publishing imploded, or was well, no. that it was before that? Was like er, like you guys? No, it was
3: it was simultaneous, but it wasn't. But it it was before it was before publishing like bursts. It was before like Source and Exo. It was before right. it was before that. But niche publications were about to happen, right. and make some money, and we were we were about to collapse right before that. Before us there was like there was like the graffiti a couple of the graffiti magazines um but there was it just there wasn't a demand and the little bit that we illustrated to people that at least people thought that this was a commercially viable option to do a, your passion around and your career and do something right. so then other magazines started popping up real quick within 6 months a year 2 years after we really we had been around for years at this point, but once we really arrived in New York, people noticed because we started hitting the streets and you know wheat pasting and stickering and doing all sure. the shit we did in Philly that went you know that was you know like a tree in the woods scenario right. Um, and once that happened, the the ad space got stretched out, and suddenly there were there were publications at a you know that, that arised after us like um, stress. Mm-hmm. and uh ego trip that were so well designed so polished and so well done ego trip was just phenomenal yeah i mean that was gorgeous and we were over here just completely breaking every design rule ever just nothing was cohesive and uh you know we we knew that we weren't we didn't have that sort of consistency like a playboy magazine or like you know the source where it was like this formula and you just drop things in but um we j- once we saw that we went even further the other direction in many ways just like let's even be we have to be the other voice and but because these were now new yorkers that were really in the game they were now getting you know the the, the priority mm. of it and i don't know that it that you know if one of us existed one of us probably would have really made it well and right, it was right but
1: because it was two it's you got to share well there and was like, 3 and 4 and oh, 5 sure. and it
3: just started to get thin and uh you know the Ego Trip, it was, it was just such a really cla- classy publication comparative, comparative to us. We were, you know, now looking back on it, it's fantastic, you know, that we did what we did. I were all
1: so dumb back then. Because, you know, like, I was just like living in the middle of it. And yeah, I was just I, like, ugh, get these magazines away from
3: me. And it was, you know, there was certainly a backlash <laughs> there. But for us, what happened is, is in 97, we did this issue. I came up with this idea. And I, I was I was really proud of it because it was like my it was the idea that came it was just mine it wasn't a team effort at that point and then we sort of built on it and Jay-Z had just gone gold with reasonable doubt and he had the platinum single with uh, Foxy Brown for Ain't No mm-hmm. and it was obvious that this guy was something else
1: do you know that song and, in particularly
3: uh-huh.
1: I find to be the uh, it, while the beat is so you know bon't Boom, 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 boom! Right, Mm -hmm. was the most misogynist, (laughs) disgusting, bad message that would infuriate me. And I also found myself like secretly like bumping like Uh, that. What you you hate, you become. You know what, like fuck you like can't believe that he's got this young girl saying all the shit like oh i put up with anything ah, so good just for a fucking purse baby yeah. you can cheat on me I'll just buy me,
3: was, buy was, me a
1: lot buy rough. me a lot
3: it was very rough um
1: yeah i was so, uh, like, it's so not our personally place. offended by that particular <laughs> song um, and have had a chip on my shoulder against Jay-Z all this time because <laughs> well, of that one.
3: Well, Jay-Z, it was interesting because Jay-Z was sort of taking a pimp-like profile at that. In, oh, in yeah. In that moment, you know? And he had, that, he had that demeanor.
1: He was a woman hater, number one woman hater. I mean, he sold crack to his mother. Come on.
3: I don't know nothing about that. Well, we, he <laughs> talks about
1: it. I don't even. I don't but, know about know, I'm just about taking away his word, whatever. Listen. Sagittarius. Uh, uh,
3: growing up in G-Town, it was the, in that crack era, it was... Everybody had their boys that were hustling and their and their parents or their mother their father would be out sucking dick from the dudes down the block that they knew that were selling crack It was unruly fourteen year olds were raising themselves
1: I mean it
3: was it was fucking one block from my crib it was crazy it was crazy I don't think blow that movie snowfall I could talk about all these different shows and movies, but there's nothing that really talks about that micro it was like a, there. It, it was literally like a one-block holocaust, Jeez. block to block, across this country, and no one really. Talk. New Jack
1: and City it, did touched on it a teeny. They little tried. Bit. It they was, tried, but it was just too. They, it was. It
3: was. It was like you know, body snatchers or right, like. Right. It, it yes. wasn't. It wasn't realistic in that way, and I'm talking about just like literally. The, the dramas that played out on one block that you, could, that you could get an entire living room set or a big screen TV for $20 worth of crack delivered to you. We would stand on the block and my boys, I wasn't hustling. They were just my boys, so I'd be out there talking to them. And we would stand on the block and at the peak of crack in the mid 80s, you could get anything for nothing. It was absolute chaos and we would stand out there. This was not right. We would stand out there and money would come and dudes would show up with Gucci bags and televisions and chairs and living room sets and you'd go, yo, isn't that so-and-so's dad? Isn't that such-and-such's mother? Why is she sucking that dude's dick in the, in the, lot, in the, in the alley over there? It was fucking crazy and then it was gone. It was the most crazy shit ever to witness. By far the craziest time of my life just as a voyeur. Not as what happened to me, but as a voyeur, and then it was gone. Everybody got locked up, and suddenly it was like crack was you know, was the focus right. of the federal government, and everyone was going up, and suddenly an entire generation was addicted and dead and zombied out and would never come back, and the children of those people were all locked the fuck up. Mm-hmm. Literally an entire generation disappeared. Instantly blocks were empty. W- in just in that, and no one talks about. It. They talk about, you know, the drama. But that shit, it was literally like it was like a gold rush, and then it was a ghost town.
1: Crazy. And it was just
3: people. It was it was just people left in 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 the aftermath of it. Anyways, um, as uh, you know, so okay,
1: again. so on the go is now you know petering out. There's a lot of mouths to feed. There's mm-hmm. a bit right. It's just not. It's it's a well, very we're at hard. Our peak. Bit. Right at your peak, and it's we very got, difficult. I mean, it's in very niche.
3: And we got
1: right, Brad. Niche. We yes, know about niche. Very niche. niche. Yes. Absolutely niche.
3: <laughs> and we and I had this Jay Z idea and pitched it and they loved it and so um, which is it was just which is going to be released. We had this whole entire issue 19 with Jay Z on the cover and this photo shoot with Jay Z that I did. It was just it, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. No one's seen it. A few people have been lucky enough to see it as I've shown it to them and you know, one of our crew has, but, um, and then we, we, we were gathering up the magazine on side quest discs and all this sort of thing. And we had to send half of it out, get the films, get the discs, delete everything off those discs and then put the second half of the magazine on that. Right. So now we have the films we send, we put everything we've got, the, the, the advertising that was paid up front, the little bit of it, we, everything we got, we send it to this printer that, that Steve got a deal with in, um, Canada. And they were like, sure, no problem. We will print this for you and ship it to you and give you terms, essentially. It's like you can pay us in this. You, you can pay us in installments. When we sent the films up there and did all of that, I think what happened is, is they saw the content, and they were just like saw that it was ratchet and hood and crazy, and they were like, no, we've changed our minds. We want full payment. So they held the films hostage, held everything we had hostage, we deleted half of the magazine at this point, ah. and it was just like, they were like, everything or nothing. And Steve, at this point- They won't give you
1: back your film? You can't no, just be like-
3: No. They, they held us hostage. Wow. We were fucked. We were done. They literally, they, they closed the magazine. Because where were we going to get the money to do this all again? Absolutely. You're not- And, and Steve, at this point- You we weren't
1: were, like, I have an extra copy.
3: There Thank were, you. No, we right. had to slug, all but right. we didn't have copies of the films. Right. Um, you know, those are expensive as shit. You know? mm-hmm. It wasn't like now where it's like right. go from your computer and it shows up at your door or something. Um, and we were like, we were so worn out for, of years of this at this the point, struggle, the struggle for no,
1: to do and, and not for nothing.
3: And Wait. here were these publications that you know had the relationships of they knew all the rappers and all the the media people, and we knew a lot of them too. And I had we had carved our own names out in hip hop history at this point, um, but it was just the, the too many people were coming in thinking this was a gold mine and they thinned out the, the, this 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 niche or this niche sure um, and steves uh, was now he was starting to do those those gates those roll down gates and stuff so he was starting to turn into a different type of an artist he was starting to paint and do things and he he was saw immediately, he was like no nah, we got to stop I, I can't do this anymore and he was like, and we all sat down and talked about it. And he was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do it. He's like, I got to pursue my art. And we were all tired, you know. And it was it.
1: it and so, on the go media was born of that. On the go right? marketing, marketing, right? Yeah,
3: the art, but it took, it was a year in between.
1: Okay, it was a year, right? But mm-hmm. th- were you gathering up all your old partners and like, hey, listen, we did this for a magazine. We can do this um, as no an aver- you know, an it was extension totally left. of advertising. Okay.
3: I I basically put together I, I having come from the streets the way I did and then having this this these other experiences and now having had a degree in design and um I had ideas but what I did understand what graffiti really did for me those years of bombing and then being involved in graffiti and then graffiti media and then needing to promote the graffiti media using the same tactics that that we used in graffiti you know the same sort of like. Sticker bombing, you know, hook make five dollars look like five thousand by you know, doing the right shit in the street. Um, I, I I was freelancing for this guy, and he was he always was fascinated. He's like this conservative dude that's from Long Island and grew up and born and raised in Long Island, and he just was excited by the magazine. It was everything that he wasn't, you know, in so many ways, um, and he really was wanting to get involved with the magazine when the magazine closed. He was just like, well, can we relaunch it or can we do something? I was like, no, it's just, this is over. And so time had passed. I was freelancing for him doing design work because he had an advertising agency. And he was like, you know, what do you know about, you know, this like guerrilla marketing stuff? And I was like, well, I've been working in the, around the music industry forever. And I understood street promo stuff and I understood graffiti. And I understood how we promoted our own magazine and what we did with wild postings or, you know, snipes and wheat pasting in the street. I was like, I have enough that I can fudge the rest. And so we talked about it for a little while. And then we, he was like, okay, I'm going to put up the money. You, you're going to keep freelancing for me. I'm going to put up the money to get a salesperson. Let's put together a deck. They put together a deck. And the first thing we did was a cold call out of the white pages to ESPN here in New York. And we said, hey, can we come and just show you what we're capable of? And they're like, all right. And we got the right guy at the right time, uh, you know, like a higher up guy. I don't know how we got to him, but we got to him. And I think he was impressed by that. And we went in and pitched him. And he called us back. I don't know how many days it was later or weeks and he said, he's like, hey, I've got $30,000 left over in this in this production budget from this TV thing. We want you to do X Games campaign. And I and I had come from skateboarding and graffiti so they just saw me as the best possible sure. scenario to supplement and drive tune in to drive people to watch uh, X Games on ESPN. And that we, you know, we did that and it was you know, it was good. It was very effective, but it was very almost music industry style. Mm-hmm. And then after that, they were like, look, now we've got a budget for the following or the following campaign. It was like, we've got a budget of 150 or something. And, uh, and they were like, but you've got to work with our agency, creative agency, because you're going to need to do a lot more stuff here. And we we're like, okay. And they turned us over to widening Kennedy. Mm hmm. Which, for those of the, who are listening, Wieden & Kennedy is this huge creative agency that does everything for Nike. Nike's identity is completely uh, connected to Wieden & Kennedy. Absolutely. So now, I'm in this position where I'm now connected to ESPN and doing all this ESPN stuff. I'm connected to Wieden & Kennedy. The guy at Wieden & Kennedy <clears throat> excuse me, loves the fact he's a skater from Jersey. So he loves the fact that I have this crazy skateboarding history. The first, you know, worked at the first skate shop in Philadelphia, come from the first generation at loved Park in Philadelphia, skateboarders, that I've got this graffiti. It's just like a perfect storm. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hey, man, we got this Nike stuff. Can you come in here and ideate? They were like, we didn't, they didn't really like the real typical uh, stuff that was coming out of Nike, New York and Portland. And they were like, what kind of creative ideas can you give us? Because Wyden Kennedy is really creative in that way. They didn't like the internal stuff as much. And so I started giving them ideas for um, Nike stuff. And then I got that. Okay. So it was like immediately. And now I'm doing ESPN on different levels, football and the SBs and, and X Games. And now I'm doing stuff for the and McEnroe release and um, Battlegrounds, which was the biggest thing we did with them, which is you know, roughly, I don't know how much that was. So
1: is this. Five hundred th- grand. Or so this is with your partner. Yes. The Long Island guy. Long Island guy, yeah. And uh, are you now a real company, or is yeah, this we're full fledged. Like and We're now full- hiring, okay. And,
3: you know, by the by the time getting up to the point that I'm talking about, we've got a full team. And what year is this? Uh, two thousand two and three. Okay. You know, we we started in
1: 1999. So. Now things are shifting a lot at yeah. Nike. Nike is starting to dip their toe into artist releases, yes, right, absolutely. And um, it's this whole tier zero, and they Quick really strike, like hyper strike. right, yeah. and they're really looking to graffiti artists mm-hmm. to. Be yeah. the their sort of harbingers of like we're mixing <laughs> art with sneakers, and you know this is really special and different. So you worked on Espo's shoe, right? And that was this is before the Menthol's, right? Oh
3: yeah, this is before the okay, menthols. So, so this is sort of like simultaneous to Nike.
1: Okay, and a, so this and so what year did his sneaker come out?
3: Oh, uh, fuck! What year was that? 2005 uh, fr- ish. But you yeah, four. Two, okay. Three, four, five, okay. something like that. So
1: this was the clear.
3: Clear the, Air Force Two. The clear, right,
1: yeah. and um, probably the, one of the hardest sneakers to wear.
3: Oh, it's, it didn't make any sense, right? If you but, if
1: you like didn't have clean shiny so- socks, well, or like the most perfect manicure. Well, uh, uh, pedicure,
3: <clears throat> I mean pedicure. Espo at this point has had the the Deitch, the Jeffrey Deitch show.
1: Oh, co- yes, yes. The, a couple the, the of years desh, prior. No. Yes, yes, yes. I remember it was, the poster. It,
3: I remember, though. There was multiple things that happened. It was, so the, Steve, A-li-
1: it was the A-Life Deitch.
3: No, That's this was wh- prior to that. Steve, oh, really? Steve, uh, Barry McGee, which is Twist, and you know Todd James, Reese, uh-huh. did a group show. This, the three of them as a team in the Deitch Projects in 2000, 2000, something like that. Hmm. So I don't they know were, about it. And there's a there's they're not my boys. No, not they're much, not
1: my boys. Whatever. There's not
3: much out there about it. The, the Japanese did a book about it. Okay, and so you might be able to find. But it's really interesting. It set the stage. I'll if take you your word first. If you look at this book, mm-hmm. you'll see everything that's happened after it.
1: Mm. Interesting. Okay.
3: They broke ground. They broke ground. They did shit no one had done. And it's not to say that there weren't things similar to it, but they were talking about things from the '60s. You know, they had they had done something really, really. Uh, next level and Jeffrey Deitch paid for it and it was brilliant fucking brilliant and it led the way into all these things that we've been seeing that over the past decade even right anyways 20 so, years 20 years yeah 20 years yeah yeah but really like it took it took a while for it to resonate and it's really been the past decade uh-huh. um of bodega looking type things and sure. pop-ups and that sort of stuff they built an entire city block in a, inside of a gallery hmm. with functioning stores essentially you know Wild. or mock stores um so, anyways, uh, so fast forward. Steve is now Steve Powers, this artist. You know, he's really celebrated. He's selling work. He's doing his thing, and I'm over here with my marketing company. And my marketing company is known in the industry for being white label. So it's sort of like if I have a relationship with you, then you know about us. But we're not in the trades. We're not. We're not a name brand of any sort we're literally you're
1: insidery baby. we're
3: insidery right and so i know a guy i'm over here and i understand nike on a whole different capacity right You're not only culturally having grown up in it and being a sneaker enthusiast you know right and, and now
1: you're working for the the creative machine that is the creative
3: machine and right. it has nothing th- and they're not interested in my love for sneakers they're there for my creative thinking process and the marketing stuff right so the people that, believe it or not, that work at Widening Kennedy and work at Nike, for the most part, are not sneaker people. No, no.
1: no, None of them. It's so they're, odd. They're, 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 it's an odd thing. I,
3: I understand, like, you can't have somebody that's a total zealot that they're blind to, to being subjective and, and analytical about what should be done. But the flip side of that is people that are coming out of agency backgrounds that are unrelated and don't know shit about the product I'll and have t- no passion I'll for it. I'll
1: tell you, I was shocked when I used to consult for Nike a lot yeah. um, in the… Early to mid-2000s, and I would go and speak to the women's team, oh. and they would all be wearing skirts and high heels,
3: and there <laughs> I was with my high tops
1: on, and I'm like, come on, ladies, like, there's a disconnect here. You're talking to a brick wall. <laughs> They're like, what? You don't like pink?
3: <laughs> right. It's so That's frustrating. so frustrating. Um, and okay. so they come to Steve.
1: Because I, re- I remember hearing things about this this sneaker. Yeah. That he was like fuck Nike. He was like fuck off.
3: No, that wasn't true. Oh, that that but, wasn't true at all.
1: Okay, good. So it was just folklore because I don't know. I'm asking. It was that was more okay. me.
3: Okay, and, it, and and that wasn't true either. Steve, Steve, Steve is really just this kind of like he's just a rare individual. Some you, know, you love him or you hate him. You can't deny that the man has brilliant things happening in his brain. Whether they no, make it sure. out through his pen or through his brush. You know, at all times is is not is not important. Just to know him and his creative process is incredible. Mm-hmm. Steve, uh, Steve grew me into a, a weapon. You know, so
1: he like he helped you learn it, to critical not consciously. Think, like... There
3: was no effort on his okay. part to do it. It was just being around his his craze. You know, the things that worked and still work wonderfully about him, and don't work. Uh, are so exaggerated and so loud that you just learn. You just learn from him. And and you know, he changed my life in in many ways. In many, many ways. And so uh for Steve, watching Steve's star rise and get things, he was always very inclusive of the team. You know, so he was, like, he was hey. like, here, help me work on these sneakers. He was like, help me work, but it was it it was more so that he loved sneakers too. But I was me and Kenny Meese, who's another aspect of on the go, who start, who really was working on the magazine with Steve in that newsletter capacity long before I was involved, and who really, me and Mies could relate on our cultural things, and Mies had this duality where he could relate with Steve on his cultural things, and so we had this this relationship, and so me and Mies were sneaker nerds, you know, late eighties, early nineties. We would talk about things, and we didn't know there was no internet at that point, and sure. We didn't know there was another there were people out there who even thought like us. So fast forward to Steve getting Nike approaching Steve and Steve saying, "Yes, Steve's like, hey, you you know, you're the sneaker, weirdo. So you know, and you're my design guide. Let's do this because Steve isn't he doesn't use a computer. so what
1: what is what was the idea behind the clear sneaker?
3: Steve just literally was like in in his crazy genius was like, Thinking about the jellies from the 70s. Okay. Those jelly shoes. I fucking and, love a jelly. And, you know, clear their clear shoes were a thing in in the 70s. And people were using vinyl in weird capacities. Sure. And, and they were doing, you know, injection molded jelly shoes. And they were like, some of them were high heels and had like honeycomb sort of support things in them to, to make them work. Remember the
1: Lucite stripper heel? Yeah. Like that was a 70s. huge. right? Yeah.
3: All the way back then. People mm-hmm. think it's a modern thing. And mm-hmm. it was like, you know, it really... P, you know, the 70s, '60s and '70s, everybody's experimenting with plastics, and mm-hmm. so they experimented the umbrellas that go over you that you can see through them. Totally, and yeah. like you know, like all, no, all these there's things an were happening.
1: in vinyl, for sure. So
3: Steve just always, you know, that's the way his creative process is. Is he really do, he never thinks conventionally, and a company like Nike, that's all they do is think conventionally for the most part. Sure, you know? they, they 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 don't really push the level. They have designers come in and work within the constraints. Of what is capable, what they're capable of doing, um, and Steve was like, "I want to do this clear shoe, and what it's going to do is not only going to be ridiculous and retarded, but it's going to force people. It's going to sh- it's going to expose people, and what that in, in meaning that
1: it's really true though, because but, it's a very private like your foot is sharing your foot is, is Kind of yeah, it's kind of personal. And
3: here's the thing: is that these dudes out here have you know it. The game wasn't quite the same as it is now, but you could have two three hundred dollars sneakers and fifty cents sweat socks. Hey. For sure, and it was just like dudes had weak game out there. Yeah, and they still do. They still have thousand dollars shoes and dollar pack sneakers. It's really, I it mean, really, uh, an
1: outfit's really all about the socks. For yeah, me. For and, me.
3: and I mean, but that's you know that's that's maturation, right?
1: <laughs> right. I got I got a hand tied.
3: If you're seventeen <laughs> and a girl's looking at your sneakers, she's not looking at your socks or your yeah. underwear. I mean, but was, I am, but yeah. but <laughs> No, at 17? At 17? I mean, I was... I, I do uh, I was uh.
1: really about sock fashion was like a, a big thing for me.
3: And uh, so we were link about ups. that. I was
1: like into my like link-ups. Yeah. Like, my like socks had to match this. Like socks well, were like a big thing.
3: You know you know, a person is on their game when their socks relate to their underwear. Oh, because. Yeah. You know, when you get down to it, and you know, you have that spontaneous moment. That's right. Game got to be right. You're
1: like, are you wearing animals or not? There's okay? no okay because you're not getting into these pants Look, unless you are. I go. I dress. <laughs> I dress
3: every day to be seen on the outside and the inside, depending so on the scenario. White, I'm,
2: so I'm thinking here, like, why? Gym socks and white tidy whities right? Right. Yeah, that's that's a very...
1: Idea. right? Brad's like ready to go. Great. Like, think clean, about it all the time. Buzz balls, I'm balls I'm on clean, them, right.
3: lint, <laughs> lint balls, and so you know his thinking was that people are going to have to wear have better socks. Okay. And with Nike, they were like they were resistant. They were very resistant to this idea. And for, he wanted to do it to the Dunk. They said, "No, you can't touch the Dunk." And it was part of an artist pack that uh-huh. was coming out with Halle Berry and Pharrell. Okay. And Pharrell had an all black. Dunk high, and he was already starting to like. He he was over Nike. This okay. was at this point it was almost contractual, you know. Okay. And so he just phoned it in an all black dunk with the NERD brain on it, and it was very, you know, it wasn't very impressive. Mm-hmm. And Halle Berry had the Rift, and the Rift was that sort of Chinese looking slip on shoe that had the split toe.
1: I love. So it went around your toe and cloven, it came with socks. A cloven hoof.
3: Yeah. <laughs> So it was easy for Steve to really shine in this equation because no the, right. Pharrell and Halle Berry hadn't made a real effort, right? And so he wanted to do the dunk; they wouldn't let him do that. He wanted to do the Air Force One; they wouldn't let him do that. And at the time, like we just had an affinity in our crew and in certain sneaker enthusiast circles for the Air Force Two. Okay. And so then he was like, "I want us to be clear." Nike said, "No. They said it can't be done. It, the material won't hold together. The stitching will rip apart." And he was, and Steve. Steve is hard headed. I mean, he is a stubborn motherfucker. He's just like, no, this is what I want. This is what we're going to do. So they kept trying to find a compromise and they kept doing these clear versions of the Air Force Two with like vinyl, but like layers of like cheesecloth looking type stuff behind it just to give it more substance. He was like, no, clear, clear, clear. And the thing about the Air Force Two is it had certain hard plastic construction and those areas could hold together in Nike's mind, in their production mind. Could hold together the areas that might rip. Okay. Um, and so pushing them enough and enough, and we're designing this in Illustrator and we're doing Photoshop stuff, and we're like, no, you got to do more of this, and we're giving them examples. They finally, after sample after sample, they came back with a prototype that was this clear Air Force Two. And it was crazy because there'd been no sneaker, certainly not in sneaker there was no professionalism like that. it's funny you know? because
1: they they released yeah. clear air force oh they huh. went they went ham yeah, after went that cra- and they're they still going crazy. ham okay um uh. but i really want to talk about your sneaker okay. and in my humble opinion can i steal the, your water yeah, yeah you absolutely I'm, can i'm
3: dehydrated yes Sorry.
1: drink 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 thank you in my humble opinion being the queen of sneakers Globally, worldwide—that's quite a quite a. <laughs> but quite is a, that so? Is that quite the end a claim of the Story there.
3: for this clear sneaker? I mean, yeah, not,
1: this is the end of the story for the clear sneakers. Just, We're going into the next sneaker. bro. Kids went
3: crazy. They slept out. It, it sold before it Halle berry, berry and, and Pharrells. They right, they didn't fall, and fall they didn't fall apart. I don't I
1: can, think you like this. <clears throat> isn't a sneaker you're really wearing? Okay, it's just like you got. You're like owning it. It's art. It's really hard
2: to build this though.
1: But are you feeling he's pain? Right. Yeah. yeah. But your uh, but sneaker. Already, wait.
3: Right after they said it couldn't be done, and they realized how big it was, and it was great. They then went and made a prototype, all clear dunk low, oh, completely okay. clear.
1: I've yes, I've seen. Which them.
3: never was made put in production, but toured around through Japan and Asia, and anyways, go ahead.
1: Where they get that idea? Those crazy guys. Wacky. Just thinking.
3: Wacky. I just
1: know. forward thinkers. Yeah. Um. But your sneaker, again, yeah. in my humble opinion. Uh huh is I would say probably the most important sneaker release really yeah because thank you it was so hyper political it was so daring Brad I gotta tell you about Ari sneaker now Please Brad is me. a sneaker he Brad's a sneaker wear like Brad well, he's wears about a to hear about but it. he's like a <laughs> utilitarian. Sneaker bar. Like, he wears them to wear them. Oh, you're a then white guy. And he's, like, on to the next. Brad, guy, are you right? a white guy?
3: Very much he's so. He's a white
1: guy. <laughs> Listeners,
3: you know Brad. Yeah. <laughs> we are all white in this room, but we are varying degrees of cultural white here. Oh, yeah, Just so
1: no. you know, I never even, like, knew I was white until recently because I'm Jewish and I wasn't white. I never identified as white. Well,
3: I'm surprised you're saying that all across the airwaves right there. (laughs) Because that is a controversial statement that I will not participate in.
1: And I'll tell you something, that Jews are white to everybody, but white people. And then when you get to the white people, and they're like, oh, you're not fucking white. You're uh, you're with us? I don't think so. What about Arabs? Are they white? No, no, we're Semitic. We're because, so we're oh, not even. Mediterranean. No, they are not white. Listen, They're brown. But white, but Jews are not. Jews are, are, not, Jews are alone. DNA. Jews are on an island by themselves because there's so much European. Uh, um, when you do um, your t- genetics in in the Jews that have mixed from okay. the, the that's why
3: wasps do not consider Jews white. E- because econ- they, have e- that,
1: e- they have the Arab thing
3: economically. Now. Jews got to a point where they couldn't be denied the conversation at the table, but they didn't have to be let into the club.
1: Correct. Jews are like, Mm. I'm telling you, Uh. I I never identified as white until uh, finally I'm like, okay, I guess I'm white. And it's (laughs) whatever. But white people are like, you're not white, bitch. Like, you're not. The tough
3: thing is that if you're labeled by uh, by other white people and people of color as being a Jew, but... me which i had to deal with because of my name and then when i actually get around jews and they go you're not jewish because right. you know your mother's a Episc- by jewish law your mother has to be jewish for right. you to be jewish okay, no,
1: not I only that. am i the sneaker queen i'm the queen of the jews i'm making you a full Jew <laughs> right now Boom! <laughs> well, <thank you. laughs>
3: I, d- I don't know if that's a gift or a curse <laughs> I,
1: mean, I don't know it's, man uh, it's both but i'm not getting, like i'm not getting rid of my so christmas you're like, tree blessings though. for what okay <laughs> yeah, yeah okay your sneaker to me
3: well, thank is you. It's the
1: most important sneaker release Damn. of the 2000s of that special time because thank you. you Brad, let me tell you about it. Please
3: to tell me about sneakers.
2: it. Tell me about
3: it. Well, you can google it <laughs> while we talk about you it. You can google
1: <laughs> it. There's a lot of there's a lot of information no shortage. on 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 these sneakers. Yeah. They come in a giant Newport cigarette box. Cigarette box. Yeah. They the Nike logo and the Newport logo that swoosh or yeah. happen to be b- on both products they're up it's upside down on the newport and it's right side up and Ari found someone to manufacture these
3: i did In China. make them on <laughs>
1: independently yeah. and literally juxtapose the addiction yeah that is. Both like sort of like the scourge of the hood, right? Expensive sneakers and fucking menthol goddamn cigarettes. <laughs> and he wrote, you know, two brands that took the most but give the least. Right. Yeah, and that was this- inside the sneaker. It's heavy. It's fucking heavy. <laughs> so imagine coming out with sneakers that look completely legit. Like right. they're like some limited release, tier zero. They have all the bells and whistles right. of a pair of Nike, yeah. but they completely identify to a pack of right. Newport cigarettes. Which makes absolute t- sense. Giving a, two, a double fuck you <laughs> to yeah. these, like, disgusting corporate giants. Yeah. And really making you think about, what the fuck am I participating in? Yeah. In this consumerism right. that is, like, now, like, sneaker mania. Yeah. It was... Yeah. You know, and to really put yourself in this very scary position with people that have billions of dollars to fuck with your life is... Re- you know what? Well, Where's my you. sound machine? Where's my applause?
3: <laughs> Do you have an applause button I on that? I mean,
1: there? I can't. can't be. Be. I didn't wear my glasses. Just here. press
3: anything. I'll take it.
1: <laughs> that was...
3: Um, the money sign?
1: Yeah, it was, that was your lawyer. He
3: was like, <laughs> he was like hello? That wasn't my lawyer. Change? That was Newport's lawyer. <laughs> no. That was Newport's no, lawyer. you're. I mean, yeah. so...
1: Was that like when? Okay, so we can go online and learn all about the sneaker. Learn right. all about the branding. Yeah,
3: there's plenty of stuff out there.
1: What was it like when you got that first season assist? Were you like, oh shit, they I, noticed me?
3: It was no, I, I I had prepared for it. Okay, you were ready. Well, the thing is, is that you have to you have to keep in mind that I have a, a an education in design, and I now have had a marketing company for several years.
1: But you didn't. Sort of like do it like without Ari, like without you, like you know what I mean. Like you could no, have done it as w- sort of like You were like you're like this is fucking me. This is me.
3: Well, the, it you have to understand. It's like I've I've talked about it in many different ways, and people tend to just want to focus on certain things that they're interested in. But there's like five moving parts to this to the to the menthol tens of why and how and where and all of that that the rationale for it. And I was very frustrated by. By dealing with corporate America. okay, and I and mind you, uh, a sneaker enthusiast or a sneakerhead, whatever you want to call it, I, 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 to this day I love Nike. there's mm-hmm. no there's no problem. but what I what my family, what the streets of LA had taught me, what the streets of Germantown had taught me, the streets of Philly, is that everyone is a hypocrite, myself included. Everyone is a fucking hypocrite the whether in every which way you could imagine that everybody is preaching one thing and totally contradicting it somewhere else and it, it that's
1: humanity basically right it is like, right yeah. but
3: that is that is to be human but the thing is is that everybody talks as if that's not who we are as a, as a species right and so the corporate as individuals it's an individual doesn't have a brain trust of people that are saying this is how you can be better this is how you can be more responsible this is how you can better yourself right but a corporation is paying top dollar to top minds to have a brain trust, to have a conference room full of people that can do better and be better. There is no possible way for any corporation or person to be perfect, but they can, we all should strive. Right. And so here I was as this person who's like, I love Nike. I love what they do and so many things, but they are like a human and they are hypocritical and, but they're a corporation and they can be way better than any individual can be. And, I knew for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to make this statement about my childhood. I'm going to make this statement having worked on marketing for tobacco and anti-tobacco and seeing the hypocrisy between that. It was the same thing. And that anti-tobacco, all anti-tobacco, the truth campaign, everything is paid for by tobacco money that is part of this master settlement agreement between the federal government and the tobacco industry. And so I was just like... And that's not surprising to any of us, you know, but it was just like, all right, I'm trying to tell corporations how to do marketing and how to create value in things that don't have value, how to see people as valuable and how to market their product to people in a way that's forthcoming and makes them money, makes like them more money than they could have thought of. And everyone's looking at me like, what kind of fucking ridiculous person, idiot are you? And so I then decided it was that you so know
1: fucking what, ballsy.
3: this idea that I that, or this thing that I had seen in the 80s in the crack 80s and, and we had played with in on the go magazine as a cover and, and we appreciated the branding of Newport in the 90s. Here I was with an opportunity having worked with Newport and one of their other brands and worked with Nike on several projects. I was like, OK, this is going to be my case study to sell my philosophy. And so, the way that that would work is that I went to the basic things that sneakers are, which is like, "Yo, man, that's dope." And and if you're from the neighborhoods that I was from and that I had come through, Newport is this is this brilliantly advertised, brilliantly designed parasite,
1: alive with pleasure,
3: yeah, Al- yeah, yeah, yeah. alive under pleasure uh, under pressure. It was our parody of alive. Uh, With pleasure. Correct. And then, you know, and that was with On The Go. And it was just like, we set the stage there and it was like, well, okay, we got away with that. Let's keep going Um, for me. And here was this, here was this perfect storm for me to like, okay, I'm going to go for it and make all the statements. I'm going to talk about my childhood. I'm going to talk about corporate responsibility. I'm going to talk about branding. And then at the very least, I knew that I, there was a vehicle here that Nego had kicked open the door. And said that kids would never buy anything other than Nike, occasional Adidas or Puma or something else. Not since the 80s had anybody even dared to jump onto a brand that wasn't one of the top brands. And Nigo had created value in a bootleg. That he did something that even Nike couldn't do. And that it was, was
1: exciting. It, it was, was exciting. It, it was, you know, it was, we always customized our sneakers mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden here comes, you know, somebody who's like thinking for you and you're like, whoa, this is what sneakers should be.
3: He did what Nike refused to do.
1: Right. And then Nike had to come and they- Catch up. And, and, and the way they did it was to sort of come to graffiti to, right. um, to the artist pool. To, they,
3: they just, they-, they they were already there to, in, in some sort of limited capacity. But what it did is it, it forced their hand. It was like they were give you two colorways one, twice a year. And they were being very stingy about the product. And they weren't, here you are. Air Force Ones weren't selling to anybody but the hood. No one middle America was buying all the middle grade you know so heavy. back then They're like 29 twenty nine ninety nine Nike you know out of the bin you know model style stuff right <laughs> and so air Force ones were strictly the hood it was strictly people of Agreed. color or white people that were hood adjacent or 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 from they were white ghetto
1: sneakers they, and they, they were, were heavy th- right
3: they are Nike to nike's credit and in no design of their no intention of the, of their own um Air Force Ones are the shoe of sneakers. Mm-hmm. They are the wingtip of sneakers. Right. They're yeah. the Tim's. They have the, the holes in the front. Right, right. <laughs> and no, it's like that is the dress-up shoe of sneakers. Okay,
1: yeah. okay, okay.
3: Hundred percent. If if you're a, if you're if you're a middle-aged guy from the hood, Air Force Ones are a nice, clean look to do it. Your short set, you know, with your, you know, maybe even it's like you know you're going to the the, the church event.
1: Right, you, and then you, you wear that. black, and you're like low key, like you're in a dress shoe. You, you're sure. good,
3: and yeah. it was it, it and and I don't think they set out to do that. Obviously, they you know the high top Air Force One originally, the basketball shoe was a very different animal from the low top. Version. Right. For um, sure. so it evolved into that. But anyway, so Nigo really said, "Okay, I'm creating value and luxury in this," and it's not that he necessarily set out to do that. Specifically, but he meant to create something special that Nike wasn't providing, and that's sort of like Nigo's biggest genius is that oh, these people who are indirectly they're they're profiting from the hood, but not trying to cater to the hood. They're just trying to market and profit from the hood. Um, Nigo sort of did was like, well, these are sexy sort of hip, symbols of hip hop. I'm going to make them everything, and so him opening up that door, they, I, I could have designed my own silhouette. I sure. could have designed my own sneaker, sure. and that, I certainly would have loved to do that. But I knew no one would pay attention. Right, the it message had, right. was the was the point.
1: It had to be an error.
3: It had to carry this. This pair of sneakers had to carry not only this sort of juxtaposition of branding between the Spinnaker logo, which is the Newport logo, and the, the the swoosh, and that that the Spinnaker logo existed before the swoosh, and they owned the category to a certain degree of t-shirts and stuff before Nike did. So there was some weird incest there you know Mm -hmm. between the brands that they sort of they they nobody acknowledged right Right, that we had in the hood right right right. that we had in the hood it was like it's too coincidental and then once i was in corporate america and doing stuff i realized that when i when i was trying to do my own things that if you when you register a mark like a logo and let's say it has a name. You have to register that with the Library of Congress, which you've done. I'm sure many times. I'm but, on the
1: I'm on the um, the master list. I just right. filed for my 20 year master. You know what it is. Like I'm on like now. If anybody uses the claw, I don't. I don't even have to go to court. I'm like here's right. the paper.
3: Right, the money. And so there's there when you <laughs> do that, you realize that for Newport to make a T-shirt with a swoosh on it, essentially their Spinnaker logo, and Nike to make it, they're they're not only competing marks but they're competing in the same category so well to the same customer to the same customer and so they can choose to just not bother each other or they could fight about it newport could get in there and fight and say you know now we kind of want to own this category but because of the master settlement agreement because they no longer could do these things there's no point in that but the fact that they made sneakers back in the uh, day uh,
1: but imagine uh, uh in in theory what a pr disaster it would be like a tobacco company is going after a sports company about a logo and like people trying to live a healthier life. Or vice versa. You know what I mean?
3: Imagine Nike picking a fight with Newport and losing. (laughs) So I just, it, to me, it was like, I just, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all. Right. Like I'd really, I take shit at face value and it, whether there is a conspiracy there, I, I'm not privy to it. So it doesn't benefit me to, to masturbate to, you know, how deep does the devil go, you know? Right. And so for me, it was just an interesting corporate juxtaposition and, and, and awkwardness. And so I was literally like, okay, if I do this, I'm going to use the Nego sort of model here. To do something that has real meaning and put detail in there and quality in every aspect of the packaging, the product, the messaging, the idea, the connection to my past, my present, my future, all these things. So what did it and,
1: cost to make one pair of sneakers box everything, like if you were going to? It
3: was, it was probably like $130.
1: Uh, to Just to make it?
3: I, I think it was, it was I, don't, I forget. And then it was
1: retailing for?
3: Uh. Uh... Like two fifty or something. Two fifty. But I had to split that with the with the people I was retailing. So you were
1: literally making
3: zero dollars. Oh, I I I, no, I lost thirty forty grand on that.
1: Oh, so you lost that? Okay, so
3: who? Outside of that, but that you have to understand. This is what I'm saying to you is that I that was the intention. This was an art project,
1: right? This this was a design project. project. This was a case study. Okay.
3: And so everyone else looked at it as like this 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 dash for cash. To, to get in on Nike's, you know, uh, to use Nike. And I was like, you guys aren't really getting it here. I'm now telling my parents to go fuck themselves. And it's, I, I'm asking my parent to disown me. <laughs> because if you're a sneaker enthusiast, nothing is higher on the food chain than Nike.
1: Right. Nothing's more important. Right, they're like, I'm not fucking with you anymore, dude. What are you doing?
3: I wear Nikes daily. Right. Or every other day or a couple of days. It's really between very, very them and comfy. Vans, you know. Yes. But the... And, and I, to this day, I love what Nike does. Me too. And I would work with Nike in a capacity if I could be me and they could be them and we could find common ground. And they have—they have, they don't need me. They're like, yeah. fuck this dude. And I would be that way too if I was them. Like, this dude is a pain in my ass. Fuck that guy. But it wasn't... it. The thing was is that I needed to make the statement. I wanted to see if they would see interest in the mark the way I did it from each other. I wanted to see if I could create dialogue about how their marketing practices are the same as Newport. Like, what's the difference? You want to stir up a little trouble, man. It's not like Newport is is down there stuffing cigarettes in in your throat. You know they're relying on their branding and their savviness and the people in the community around them to promote this. Right. nope people don't smoke because they saw an ad one day or just like you know you're 30 years old and you go ah you know what that looks cool to do I'm gonna go do that. You start smoking at 12, 13, 14, 15, you 16, wanna be a and you want to be like the, the 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 badass motherfuckers on the corner right. or or you know and they can say it's because of anything. You want to be like these people and then. In smoking for the first time in your life, you're conscious of the branding, you're conscious of advertising. Now, once you're a smoker, however you get there, now they need to work on you to get you over. Right. Everybody's first cigarette is probably you know a, a Marlboro or a Newport, right? You know, or on the West Coast maybe Cools. Yeah. And Mine was
1: a Salem. It was a menthol, but it was Salem, right? And
3: you come Delicious. to it, however you come, you know, like it's your parents or somebody <laughs> else my you mom's, know, yeah. right? And you take it, and <laughs> and so there's this, there's this all this stuff going on, and the way that newport advertises in the hood, nike does in their own way. And Nike had at that time, that was sort of almost about to be the end of an era for Nike. Nike at that time, 70% of their business was through Foot Locker, and 90% of Foot Locker's business was Nike, and they were starting to come into some beef with each other. Like Nike was realizing they can't depend on Foot Locker cuz Foot Locker will do weird shit and not order or order too much and just fuck up the brand. There was weird stuff going on, but but um, Footlocker had this coincidental perhaps, maybe not. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but Footlocker w- would heavy up their ads on the first and the fifteenth. That's when the welfare checks come. That's when any paycheck comes, but that's when the specifically right, when the welfare right. checks come. And so, and Footlocker is Nike's partner, and Footlocker would advertise that Nike is a class act. And they don't do that crude advertising, right? So they leave it up to their partners to do it for the Models and Nike, uh-huh. $29.99. Sure. And so there was this sort of like, they would market the sex appeal through the, through the celebrities and through the athletes, right. and they would do the broad stroke advertising in thoroughfares, popular thoroughfares of the city. But that sort of boots-to-the-ground hood advertising was their partners at V.I.M., You know, at the Israeli, you know, hood stores or like the Korean sneaker stores and and that that, that dominated in Philly. We had both the Israelis and the Koreans having sort of like the foothold on footwear and what we we would now call streetwear. Then it was just urban clothing. It was just clothing. It was no category to it. Um, and so I was looking at all it these things
1: wear. it was sports yeah. it was outfits for sports
3: yeah. well, track you know, suits and, and then and that bit, right. and stuff. And then and and
1: became weekend wear and then it Sergio Valente right, right. And, yes. Yes. You know,
3: it, they, so you know all that it was again I could go on for 18 hours about it but there were all these things and I spent years thinking about this it was slowly building up and it all went into it it wasn't a colorway it wasn't just a theme like yo I really like uh, uh, uh um Pendleton, so I'm doing a Pendleton shoe. It wasn't that kind of a process for me. It was the colors. I didn't even like it, the colors that way. I liked parts of it, but it needed to reflect Nike and Newport. It wasn't about it me. Did. It did. It was about my story, and it was about their vehicle.
1: Who who set off a uh, legal on you? Like, how did it happen? And you were you knew it was going to happen, and what yeah. happened?
3: Um, well, uh, Nike. Gave me a simple cease and desist. They were really great about it, and you know the rumor has it, and I won't name names, but uh, all the way up to the to the top, they thought it was interesting. You know, it, it was amusing to them. Sure, certainly nothing they could endorse for the obvious. I mean, reasons. it
1: was a it was a it was a very lofty and ambitious release.
3: It, it was. It was crazy, and they so they sent me uh, uh, you know several documents, and it was like, look, you you know about the mark, the logo. The use of the name because I had like some of my stuff had Ari on sure. it that looked like the Nike Air. thing. Right. And um and and then they uh you know, they, they went through and it was really not about the shoe, it was just about the mark. Okay. And so
1: did, did they were they asking you to inventory? Were they asking you to send product Nike was, to them? Or Nike they just was like chill. They were just like cool. stop selling it. Okay. They were
3: just like stop because they they were smart enough to know because they're in the space to be like, well, this isn't significant. Right. And it's it only also, significant if you keep moving forward. And I told them it was only 252 pairs. Right. So that's I mean, that's basically a custom run.
1: And now Newport's coming for you. Now what's happening? How so does Newport that go down? So Newport
3: sends me similar kind of things. Like, hey, look at this. is our Spinnaker logo. Very similar stuff. Mm-hmm. Like when you hold them side by side. But they then, they basically, their their uh, legal counsel was out of house. So um, Nike just was like, okay, not threatened by it. And I don't think that Newport was threatened by it. They The tobacco industry has had more fear because the federal government might come after them if they don't regulate things that have their branding on it.
1: Well, that's the, that's the excuse, right? That's like the, excuse. That, right, that's the that excuse. You own this, Mark. You must defend it to the end. Yeah.
3: And they were, and I understood their paranoia because I understood the master settlement agreement um, with the tobacco industry and the federal government. So I, I, I knew what was there. But what I didn't anticipate where I was naive was that their legal counsel was out of house and they saw this as an opportunity to bill. Ah. Oh. And so they used everything within the law to chase me around,
1: just to bill the hours. Just right. to build
3: the hours. Every email, everything they had, they, they would bring me down there to oh. drop off product.
1: No wonder and, they fucking call lawyers bottom feeders, right? like, You know what I mean? When,
3: <laughs> when I talk to it's them, like
1: American I, business is just set up to pay lawyers. Oh it's like God. it's just crazy. Don't get me like,
3: <laughs> Let me tell you, the, 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 the main, their the main lawyer that represented them he was just he just had that landlord type of vibe to him you know it's like like a i don't give a fuck how much you bleed this is my legal right and you shouldn't have done it like i will grind you into the ground it he was let me tell you he was so upset when he was just like okay now we need to get down to how many of these did you make and i said 252 he's like what (laughs) and he was like i don't believe you So I had to get factory documents. Right, because that's what they
1: want. They go, when you bootleg, they go after whoever manufactured it as well. Um, Which, China, they can do nothing. Right, basically. You're like, huh. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you finally like you spent years unwinding this right and, and yeah it was a couple of years and, really and thousands and thousands of dollars
3: yeah it was, and a, yeah. right it was about so fifteen did this, grand do you out feel of like this
1: affected your career and people wanting to work with you like maybe no. you were a little too tenacious they or they were just like I'm gonna fuck with this guy because he's c- got balls
3: it was kind of like everything else in my life no one noticed. <laughs> <laughs> you know what i mean yes. only only we noticed right people in the culture and I, I don't use that term the culture but whatever sneaker culture hip-hop all the things that we've done people enthusiasts in those circles mm. noticed mm-hmm. but when it comes to the check writers i'm still invisible nothing ever happened okay good you know and it's like you're like i'm with the exception of nike okay. who is probably you know and any tobacco company but if, if I'm doing it through my company, they're still, like, they don't do their due diligence of that course, way. Of course, of course. Then they're going to look at my partner, and he couldn't be any more squeaky clean. Right. That dude is, you know, is Windex.
1: So now, fast forward 16 mm-hmm. years later. Yeah. And these kids are re-releasing your sneaker with your blessing. But they've added an additional well, color. Well, I
3: wouldn't say it's my blessing. It's not
1: your blessing because when I... Okay, so I saw <laughs> all of a sudden these sneakers popping up yeah, all over the place, them, right? Yeah, there's a bunch of And, and I'm they're just still like, coming. They're coming. And they're so rare and they're just so special to me that all of a sudden I see them like on every single person's page and they're waiting online to buy them. And I'm like, what the fuck? They're ripping off Ari and I write you... A DM and I'm like that, yeah. and you're like, no, no, I know all about it. Like, yeah, and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with these people?
3: Listen, it's <laughs> I, I, this sneaker. The message of of the Menthol Tens is very much about hypocrisy, it, about my own, my family, the cor- the industry, the tobacco industry, the sneaker industry. It's just about hypocrisy, and the human condition, uh, right? value. Okay, w- you know, something that's worthless worth something. It's all about that hypocrisy, right? And I would be a hypocrite to sit here and go, you can't bootleg the bootlegger. To like, oh, I'm going gonna, gonna to send
1: Newport after
3: you. But the thing is, is that these, <laughs> you know, cats that are, people know this, they don't. Well, it makes your story fresh again. And now it's it like does. to a new audience
1: of people that didn't even know that, that something like this happened.
3: No one will ever spend the money to get the level of quality and detail that I did because they would I mean, straight taken out.
1: you take have to L. make your own last. Yeah. For that, I mean, it's a lot of work. I totally my own
3: molds, your own molds. everything. It's was just w- it's
1: really wild. That's and eleven
3: thousand dollars alone. I know, and that's, that's whole sizes, not half. Sizes. I mean,
1: when I worked with Nike, and I was like, "Can I make my own, you know, yeah. bottom print?" Like, and they're like, "Oh no, no, no. you know, <laughs> we, $11, don't, $11, we don't. We don't spend like, money. <laughs> we just earn it." <laughs> um, and uh, I, I mean, I, it's, I think it's, a, it's a nice compliment. Unfortunately, I also feel like these kids are so devoid of real creativity. Um, well, they
3: always were. So yeah. There's nothing new here. Yeah, but, there's no difference you between know, now and then.
1: Yeah, and, but it, it would be nice if someone continued in the legacy of sort of like
3: tearing I think they are. the
1: man a new one. You know. So, what do you think is going to happen now with their release? Do you think that tobacco and or Sports are going to react to that, or they're just like, oh, this thing again.
3: What, uh, specifically, it's like the n- to
1: the new release. Like, are they going to get cease and desist
3: for the, the other people doing airport yeah. stuff? You mean, yeah? Um, I think I don't think so. I think it's, I think they'll get ce- cease and desist, but I don't think they'll be throwing the book at them like I was simply because a there's not, there's a different council now. Mm-hmm. And three or four years ago, RJ Reynolds bought Lorelard who is the 200-year-old tobacco company from New York that owns Newport? Ah. They own multiple brands but Newport is their star brand. RJ Reynolds bought it to br- to bring that menthol and that power into their fold. RJ Reynolds and Philip Morris are like Nike and Adidas. Okay. And they're competing with each okay. other. And so they tend to or you know Burger King and McDonald's. They they tend to make these relationships if people don't notice, McDonald's is exclusively and always will be Coca-Cola, and Burger King cannot be. Okay. And so in 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 Pepsi's, like what they do in these situations, they create partnerships. Correct. So they're going around buying shit. Pepsi went and bought Taco Bell, Pizza Hut, and KFC, so that they can have their products. Right. It's just like these relationships are crazy. And it's the same thing in the tobacco industry is that they're buying. So, so by buying Newport, I think it's a game changer. Okay. It does. You can't fuck around. You can't fuck with tobacco. They'll come get you. Mm-hmm. And, they, and they need to because they have to protect kids, you know, because right. they're not protected anyways. But even this little bit of what they do does help. And I'm all for that.
1: Uh, there's something else I really want to talk to you about and' okay. something that I find so fascinating and it's your Instagram. Oh.
3: Hey, and do you actually read my Instagram?
1: I I actually do. Don't I often comment? You or do. maybe I haven't for a while, but you know, yes, I, I read your Instagram. so I know your, it's a
3: it's much. we got too much to do in our lives.
1: Your Instagram, no, I mean, I really appreciate the whole breakdown, the psychological breakdown mm-hmm. of branding, marketing. And the <laughs> juxtaposition of brands that you choose, yeah, um this is something you're really like passionate about.
3: I am, and it co- goes back to on the go magazine. okay? is it's really just Steve and I, you know th- are, 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 besides graffiti, which is this disruptive form of art we uh, or communication and rebellion, we really have a love for commercial art. And Steve, you know, has a deep love for fine art, as you see. But um, the first art that any of us ever see and are exposed to in in most areas the of the world books, right? is right. advertising.
1: All right. Okay. Yeah.
3: is It's the products. Okay. And that's art. And for me, there's this really interesting space of the people who create it with sincerity, the people who, who are creating it painfully so because they just have a job, um, the genius that they express through that to ultimately sell us stuff, and sometimes they sell us stuff very straightforward, and it's fine. And sometimes it's very disingenuous and, and, and shady. And there's just a lot of space in there to think about. And what what they prey upon is the is how ignorant and naive we are as a species.
1: Well, yeah. I believe that humans. React to symbols, right? Mm-hmm. Symbols are, uh, are 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 this thing that that humans respond to. It's it's fascinating.
3: It's what our species has developed to recognize. It is absolute survival uh, element of who we are as a species. Is that we recognize danger in different ways. We recognize pleasure in different ways. We recognize where we should go and what we should do in different ways. We are completely our language is very visual that way. And since we don't have built in certain types of instincts, those are the few that we have, which is see that symbol. That means bad. That means good. Where animals don't really have it quite that way. They're looking at different actions or different, you know, geographic Energy things. And yeah, or yeah, yes. Eyes and teeth. And, right. You know, and there may maybe some things that are similar to that. But like if you put a cucumber on the ground you next to a half the cats in the world, they jump and leap because they think it's a, a snake. That's just their programming. So it's very similar that way, but with us, it it goes much deeper. We associate pleasure and all kinds of other things into it. And sometimes I get people arguing with me about it and I'm like, hey, your argument's right too. We're both right. That is why this exists. There, there's no one on earth that can't what well, i shouldn't well, say that no
1: responds one. to the same thing the same way yeah also you know what i mean it, well it's
3: well here's the thing that people don't really realize that in cultures and society like in america we associate blue with medical we associate green with financial to a certain degree okay and in other countries it won't be that way like you could go to i remember the first time i went to germany and seeing like snacks that look like things that should be in a pharmacy. Okay. like something you should rub on you use on your teeth or something and that was their branding the way their culture had branded things differently so here we have a thing if you see something white with with thin lines going through it and it has blue in it you start thinking medical
1: you do you it just j- do right
3: you know if well, it's the in the
1: hospital it... signs on the highway were, were blue right, right? It's, so then like it just It's
3: branding. right and so th- the same thing if if th- when i wear i have a uh, you know this red rugby on right now if i had yellow pants on, you'd be like, Ronald McDonald. Mm. <laughs> Straight up, Ronald McDonald. And, you know, we look at 50 other brands, fast food brands, they use red and yellow. I it mean, is, this, the those are the colors of delicious fast food.
1: But also, Undeniable I mean, so. if you go deeper, those mm-hmm. are the, uh, those are the colors the eye registers first, like mm-hmm. red, right?
3: Exciting. And,
1: uh, you know, you can spot that little bit of red out of the corner of your, oh, I'm gonna eat there. Like you're driving. You know what I mean? So. Well, that's what
3: I did in the in the Instagram. It was literally like what we had learned in publishing the magazine and what we had learned from the industry that there's colors that are the point of purchase and impulse purchase type stuff, which is pink and red and yellow and orange and fluorescent green are the things that people buy at the register quick. Magazines, all the titles of magazines always have that. This is an educational we got after the you know once we mm-hmm. were already in the industry. And that really made me start looking around at everything. Newport, all the cigarette advertising in any corner store, especially in the hood, is sort of like blurry. Newport is fluorescent green or a Kelly and green and orange. a fluorescent orange or yeah. a bright orange. And it stands out. And it's retarded. You know, excuse my, I, that's, no, it's that's not a good term. It's just ridiculous. You look at it and you're like, this sucks, but it's brilliant. Then it stands out. You could walk into any bodega, and if they got Newport up, it's, you're going to see it right away. You just know it. Even <clears throat> if you don't know what it is, you're just like, oh. And they win. They win. Checkmate. Right. No one could do it. Marlboro won on the lifestyle. American. If you're American, you're a real American. Amer- oh, you're man's a real man. man. You're a real yeah.
1: fucking man. And
3: you got it. And those right. two, no one's done it better.
1: Huh. I like those Benson Hedges ads when I was oh, young. Oh, were. And, when I was young.
3: The packaging <laughs> I like, feels.
1: I wanted to be sophisticated.
3: That's what my grandfather smoked. I, I loved it.
1: Yeah. Anyway, thank you so much thank for joining you. us today. And I've learned so much and I want to learn some more.
3: My Instagram's at, at Ari.
1: At Ari. A R I. And he's not selling it. So all yeah, you all you it. Ari's, Yeah, stop DMing him.
3: Thank and you for having me. Uh, it's is really great to, to connect with you on this level.
2: Right, isn't yep. he a cutie? Oh yeah, yeah. That was.
1: Didn't you like his ascot?
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! Yeah, I didn't. Did so I take well a picture? Dressed? I didn't take any pictures.
1: We Fuck. have been really bad with taking. I know, pictures. I know. I know. I know. And then also, like, I, I need to get my outfit video. game up. I'm like, oh, I'm just doing the podcast. I'm just <laughs> <this on." laughs> oh, I don't need to brush my hair for this <laughs> I mean, yeah, No,
2: he um, he's a styler, man.
1: Styly. Uh,
2: I, I can't maintain that shit. No way.
1: Um, I can't wait to find out more about what Ari's working on currently. He's very like, you know, I know he kind of keeps it under. It's obvious there's something going on. There's something interesting going on. But he's tight lipped. We'll just have to stay tuned. (laughs) If you want to find out more about Ari, as you should, um, you can find him on Instagram at Ari. And and when you go to his Instagram profile, it says I am not selling my Instagram name. So I guess everyone named Ari is like, "Yo, dude." Yeah, are you kidding me? Three 25 letters? books. <laughs> Let me get your name, Yo. Yeah? I'll give you a hundred dollars. And then also you can read about um, his projects, about the Menthol Tens, about cease and desist, and all this stuff on his website, Ari Saul Foreman. A R I S A A L, yes, two A's in a row. Foreman F O R M A N dot com. <laughs> um, he's a cute website too. It's it's um Windows Throwback. It's cute. I'm yeah, into it. It looks great. Yeah, it really does. Um and you know where to find me, of course. I'm on the interwebs, all over the place. Just Google bitch, and there I am. <laughs> Who has at bitch? I bet somebody does. I'm going to offer them $25 for their name. Um, oh, Claw Money, Clonco, Clonco dot com. blah, blah, blah. Brad is posting night and day on Instagram, Soundwag. Just, I mean, let him flood your feed. <laughs> Get on there. Bubbles, having shows all over town.
2: Oh, Bubbles. Bubbles. Bubbles Wonderful is the music. best.
1: We love Bubbles. Yes, I'm in Bubbles Land right now. I know. All right, I'm I'm where uh, where half of Bubbles resides, where Bubbles bubbles off, <laughs> and uh, we'll see you suckers in two weeks.